0: Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co host. I am sitting here with co
1: host Paul Farrell. Paul, how's this going this evening? Going good. Going good. Happy to be here.
0: Rock on. Hey, uh, hey Paul, guess what? What's that? We have
1: a guest. We do.
0: <laughs> yes, we.
1: Wait a second. Wait, do we have a guest? I mean it it's it, it news to me, but you you surprise me every week with a guest, so Oh it's possible. Hell. Wait, wasn't it your turn to get us a guest? Um We don't have I guests
0: mean, this week, Paul.
1: We it, don't have a it guest this week. Might have been. Either. I can't I can neither confirm nor deny whose turn it was.
0: Okay, so apparently we're guestless this week as what? So what? I we we're just gonna have to spend this entire episode talking to each other? That's I guess.
1: It. That feels weird.
0: Damn it, man.
1: <laughs> We've had a guest for like a bunch of episodes now.
0: We have. We have. You know what? No, this is completely cool. We're we're getting back to what the show was originally like, just chatting with each other for a week. I don't know. Maybe in uh, upcoming weeks we'll have some more guests. Maybe not. But uh, no, you know what? We'll catch up. We'll chat a little Hammer Horror tonight. I think it'll work just like it did back in the day, minus maybe the uh, shocking amounts of alcohol we used to go through.
1: True. I do have a, a selection of beers next to me, so I will be... Well, well covered on the, on the alcohol front.
0: I am, uh, I haven't had a drink in over two weeks, Paul. Wow. That's this impressive. is, uh, this is probably the longest stretch I've gone without a drink since, uh, since, uh, COVID began. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm a little clear headed. Uh, don't feel so maudlin. I don't know if I like this, but, uh, you oh. know, that's where I am right now.
1: So that's good, man. You can, you can keep us on track when I start to go off the rails.
0: No, I don't think I could do that on the best of days, Paul, but (laughs) I'll try all the same. Now, We, (laughs) listeners will not be privy to this, but you and I have already been chatting for 90 minutes about any number of things, including torture (laughs) porn, DC movies, the Snyder Cut, X-Men, Deadpool. I don't know why we didn't just hit record and make that the pre-show, but we didn't. So we're going to have to start from scratch here. Now, as everybody out there knows, or maybe they don't, which is why I'm going to go through this one more time, but Hammer Pub is basically where... Well, Paul and I, we uh, we provide a running commentary for a Hammer Horror film while having a drink or seven. And uh, me, like I said, I am teetotaling tonight. Paul's got some beer for whatever reason, because beer is terrible. It was whatever. great. That's great. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's, you know, hey, everybody's opinions are their own. It's cool. Each their own, man. Uh, but in advance of that, we'll actually chat about recent watches for about 30 to 45 minutes. Paul, I don't know that it's going to take that long tonight, because I got to tell you, over the course of the past week, I... Have not watched much in the way of really anything. I've watched a couple of things. I'll I'll talk about a couple of horror TV things, but otherwise, like I, I've been writing mostly and uh, uh, dealing with crazy people on Twitter. That mm. that took up a. I saw chance. that. I saw that. Yeah. That's. Uh... Yeah, insanity. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. Uh, crazy people. Anyway, and uh, you know, other than that, I, I I've gotten the shit kicked out of me by my. Uh, uh, I'm not complaining, uh, but my second uh, vaccine, my second Moderna shot, man, I got it on Friday, and uh, it's still beating the hell out of me a little bit. Um, e- easily handleable. Like, I'm I'm glad I did it. I wouldn't want to scare anybody away from getting their vaccine, but I would just have you brace yourself a little bit. You know, you'll have, you know, if you're anything like me, some aches, some pains, a little bit of a headache. You know, I've heard some people uh, get a minor fever. Easily, easily, you know, uh, you can deal with it pretty, pretty easily. But it's if you can tell, I'm a little strung out tonight because I'm still not quite a hundred percent from it, but, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it away as it were. But that's, that's pretty much been my last week. Uh, like I said, I have a couple of, uh, horror TV things to talk about. And, uh, you know, like <laughs> the one movie that I watched of all things that happened to be something on Amazon prime and, uh, I wasn't feeling well. And I thought, well, this is uh kind of a, this will be an easy watch. I watched a Liam Neeson action flick called honest thief. And, uh, you know, it's that it was what it was. Um, it's weird to see a sixty-eight-year-old man, you know, still being an action hero, diving out second-story windows and running around. Sure. it's just it's it's like just let the man age like let him he, his career almost went in reverse you know i i see a lot of actors like they'll start out action heroes and then they make that transition in their 40s or so to being just more straightforward dramatic actors right uh, not counting tom cruise and that that son of a bitch will be jumping off buildings till he's 80 but um you know with neeson it seemed like he did more dramatic fare first and then uh after taken he was he was sort of mr action which is um uh, you know, it's a choice. It's cool. It's fine. The movie's, you know, fun for what it is. A lot of great actors doing a movie that's, you know, just kind of rote in a way, but, um, I don't know, Paul, what have you seen recently in the last week? You know what? You can carry us. If, if I'm going to talk about two TV things, we normally talk about six things total, just line up four things that you might've seen in the last week and let me know how they were.
1: All right. Um, well, I, I also watched a lot of non-genre stuff. Um, but I did catch a few things. Um, I will plug one thing right out the gate because I always kind of do this. I always kind of break the rules. That isn't horror, but it was. It's a Canon Studios film, so I feel like it's okay to bring it up. Yeah, um, it's horror adjacent. To anything it's, canon it's not even remotely horror, but it's the Last American Virgin. Well, you're right. Um, and but it's Canon. It's Canon. Uh, and it's, uh, like a, like a teen sort of comedy. Uh, but I I just got to put this out there because, um, you know, that's not a subgenre that I'm like super into. Um, I'm not like a huge Porky's fan, you know, like the eighties sort of teen sex comedy movies. So I had always heard of this one, but I never really watched it. Um, I checked it out because, uh, screen drafts uh the podcast i bring up quite a bit did a canon draft with elric kane and patrick bromley oh nice um and they drafted this and spoke very highly of it so i picked up the olive blu-ray and this movie is uh so good (laughs) and so interesting and so much more. I don't want to spoil it, but I, I do think it's important. Like, if you've if you've watched like teen sex comedies before and thought, yeah, okay, but they're kind of like a little bit offensive and questionable and and not that funny, especially ones from the eighties, and have dismissed others because of that. Like, check this one out. Um, not only is it funny and sort of charming in its ridiculous, over the top, sexed up teen comedy stuff. But about two thirds of the way through the runtime, it sort of diverges into the dark emotional consequences that the dehumanizing sexual exploits they're all partaking to, like, result in. Um, And it actually, like, goes to some very interesting, dramatic places. Uh, And that's all I'll say. But it floored me. I was very impressed. And I will say that um, it is easily the best of that type of movie that I have ever seen. And I can't imagine anything ever topping it. Um, It's really interesting. I need to check it out. It's funny. Even you saying that
0: it's kind of like, I, I want that movie out of the American pie franchise. You know that (laughs) American pie came out when I was 18, like right after I graduated. And I've kind of grown up with those characters. The last one that they put out theatrically was kind of amazing just, you know, seeing those characters having grown and being the same age as them or the same age as they're supposed to be anyway. And like, I want to see what those characters are like in middle age. So I would like to see those stakes raised and I would like to see it get a little more grounded, a little more, you know, not necessarily dark, but just a a little more realistic, you know? And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't mind seeing that, but uh, yeah, I've never seen that movie, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll check it out. You mentioned, was it Olive put it out?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's an all blue. It looks really good. And it, yes, it's funny you brought up American Pie. I, I was uh, in high school when American Pie came out. And um, yeah, that was like a revel- revelatory movie. I really loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, I still have an affection for it. And I did enjoy American Reunion, which was the fourth one. That sort of I honestly see like I like watching American Reunion just as a direct sequel to American Pie, because for the most part, two and three don't really matter. Um, there's a couple yeah, things that happen, but like they don't really like. You can watch that fourth one is just a sequel, and it actually has more characters in it that reprise their roles than any of the other two, than either of the other two, anyway. But yes, this this is kind of like if the last act of American Pie had dealt with like I don't I don't want to yeah I mean anything I'd say would sort of spoil where that this movie goes, but like had dealt with something very serious um and then sort of held up a mirror to the actions that our sort of male protagonists were taking in their sexual exploits, which the movie sort of tries to do a little bit, but there's no real consequences for anything they're doing. They're all rewarded. Um And ultimately, you know, it, it works out for them, but like this movie isn't as easy as all that. And, and it, it's, it's very, to me, it's impressive that it manages to walk that, line of outrageous sex comedy and then like emotionally effective drama um and it does it very well so anyway i know this is a horror podcast i apologize but it's something that I, I has been on my mind and i wanted to get out there because i think more people need to check it out <laughs> um, cool. i'll
0: check it out and you mentioned like i said olive i Man, are, are they are they having a, a a Blu-ray sale this week? By any chance? Because everybody else is Paul. <laughs> everybody Dear else God, is having S- a damn I sale. What? I it's am almost sp- like sp- they're sp- expecting sp- Americans to have
1: like a massive influx of money. Oh, yeah, come maybe, in soon. Maybe. maybe, maybe. I mean, um, can I be honest with you? And I sent you a picture of like my Warner Archive, so you know I spent a lot of money at Warner. I put in a second order today. Oh. <laughs> uh, Oh no oh. I did. So oh, just to oh. let you know, like i am I am in trouble. Uh, and i I did take advantage of the keyno sale. um it is it's rough. so and i and God only knows I'm sure there'll be something coming up. I mean, there's always criterion half off or you know, Arrow has their sale, uh you know, indicators got their three for whatever, you know, it's like it, there's it's these companies are getting too much. I can't handle it, but I did the uh, a Blu-ray problem. <laughs> I do too. It's, uh, it's I did too.
0: the Hamilton book sale, uh, which I had never ordered anything from them before. I think uh, uh, Brian Sauer uh, tweeted something about it, and I was like, "Well, let's see what they have." Okay, I'll just snag four things there, and then Kino hit me, <laughs> and then Warner Brothers hit me, and I was like, "Guys, please!" And then I'm hearing that something else is coming up this week, and I forget what it was, but uh, and it's like
1: enough already. Like, well, guys, you've got the. Uh, vinegar syndrome halfway to black friday sales coming up uh, of at bitch. the end of this month now luckily i'm a annual subscriber so i've already sort of purchased that in a way but you know it's it's still like there's still certain things like i don't own every title they've ever put out you know there's older titles that i would want to get to maybe fill in my collection so you know it's crazy um yeah i agree with you it's it's the the sales are too much stop putting things i want on sale blu-ray companies at least at least space it out a little bit yeah, like a couple months be fair. give, me, be give fair. me they should work together on this anyway uh <laughs> the next movie i want to talk about um was also from a boutique label uh this comes from synapse and it's um, called massacre at central high such a great movie man yeah it's from uh, 1976 um and do you have the synapse blu-ray no, so here's the thing, way back in the day, uh you know,
0: it's funny, I'd read about it in Fango way back in the 90s and I'd always wanted to see it. As I understood it, there were always some sort of uh, I think there were rights issues with it for the longest time. So uh, probably about a decade ago, I just gave up and bought a bootleg DVD that had been pulled from some VHS copy from way back in the day and that's how I saw it and uh I just absolutely adored it. So I got to tell you, I, I think i maybe heard something about it coming out soon. I didn't realize that it was already out. So, um, or available anyway. So yeah. So you say it's synapse. I'm gonna need to buy that because my God, what a movie.
1: Yeah. And, um, so, the the plus and minus of this with the Synapse Blu-ray is it's a gorgeous release. It's one of their steelbook releases, ah. um, and when they do steelbooks, they do it upright. Um, yes, you do. know, they do steelbooks with slip covers, which I love. Um, so it's got like a real thick slip cover um, with different art than the actual steelbook. It comes with the soundtrack. Um, it was a meticulous remaster, so it is gorgeous. Um, the thing ain't cheap admittedly uh it's one of their it's it's expensive but i i think this is a must own for horror fans especially after watching it i had always heard of it like you i had never seen it it's not an easy movie to see uh it's it it, it, well now i guess it's more easy but it 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 was never very available so when i heard they were doing it i pre-ordered it and yeah this movie man it it plays and and again i'm not the first person who ever said this but it's just how you feel after watching it it plays a lot like an after-school special um for a portion of it um where new kid in town sort of being indoctrinated by the school bullies the bullies in this movie are particularly um ferocious um they kind of remind you of like a stephen king bully or uh if um have you ever seen the movie It's with James Spader um, from, like, 80... Oh, The New Kids.
0: No, I haven't. Uh, I saw that that Blu-ray came out maybe, what was it, a year, year and a half ago? I did to pick it
1: up. Yeah, and The New Kids, uh, that Blu-ray is awesome because it's, like, eight bucks. Uh, It's one of the, (laughs) like, Mill... You know, like, the new Mill Creek? Or is it Mill Creek? Who's the company now that, like, used to be really crappy but makes Blu-rays that are pretty decent? Yeah, I think that's Mill Creek. Yeah, 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 Mill Creek. So anyway, they put it out and it's really inexpensive. Um, So yeah, definitely pick that movie up. But anyway, that movie reminded me a lot of this movie. Um, Very much so. Uh, They both sort of have a first act where it's more like new kids in town, sort of going to a new school, getting to know the, the getting sort of run up against the bullies there. And then like what what starts out as sort of like normal, cruel uh, teen movie bullying turns into stuff that goes like really deep and dark Um, and it kind of eventually becomes a bit of a early slasher movie um, where, you know, and I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, it sort of devolves from. Drama in the school, like melodrama, having to do with um, the boy and this girl he likes, who's dating a friend of his, and trying to like go against the grain of the bullies who run the school. To slowly, one by one, people are getting picked off. Um, and the transition is really subtle, and the, it's I, I, it's almost not a horror movie. I mean, it's not ever really. Scary. Scary. It's it's more dramatic than anything else. But because people are sort of being picked off and it does feel sort of influential to teen slashers that would come later on, um, it, it definitely falls into that. So it's, it's exploitation through and through, but it's done with like a reserve sort of aggressive nature that feels really dangerous and kind of mean uh, it's it's and, got a mean streak a mile wide man. Yeah, it, it, and it's and it's unexpected. And and you're kind of along for the ride. You don't really know where it's all going and what it's all building towards and who like you're supposed to root for. That was something I really appreciated about it um is that throughout the film who your sort of like protagonist good guy character is constantly is sort of shifting or at least it's trying to shift it. Um and I just yeah, it was it was a really engaging experience. It's it's pretty sleazy at times. Uh there's some rapey moments in it that are a little uncomfortable, but they're supposed to be because the people doing that stuff aren't people you're supposed to be rooting for. Uh so yeah, I, I can't recommend this movie enough. Um definitely something to uh seek out and uh get that Blu-ray if you can. Absolutely. I need to snag that. Uh I think I am You know, when
0: they first started, I remember people sort of bitching and moaning about the steel books and how expensive they were. But then, like you said, when you look at what they put into them, like that Suspiria release, the Phenomena, the Tenebrae, like all of those were well worth the 40 or 45 bucks that you paid to wind up getting those given the work that went into them. Um, I am behind on them. I think I have all the Argentos. I picked up Popcorn. I do not have um, The Living Dead at... Is it The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue? I think yep. uh, yeah. I don't have that one, and I do not have uh, Massacre yet. But I need to uh, I need to fix that, Paul. So thanks for giving <laughs> me the heads up. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 worth it. So good deal. I um, oh, what have I seen recently? I have been keeping up, kind of, sort of reluctantly, with Clarice the uh, television series. Oh yeah. That's How acting is that? as kind of a, uh, you know, a sequel to The Silence of the Lambs. I think they're doing an interesting thing, which is, you know, rather than sort of rebooting that world and just sort of diving back in, much like uh, Brian Fuller's Hannibal did, which don't get me wrong, I loved Hannibal. But this is kind of acting as a direct sequel to The Silence of the Lambs, the film. It's not a, you know, obviously they recast everyone because they kind of had to because it's set one year after the events of the movie. But there are flashbacks in it that, I mean, they're obviously just restaging the Jonathan Demme film, you Mm -hmm. know, so this is a direct sequel they're kind of pulling a doctor sleep and just recasting everybody but it's understood that this is following on from the events of the uh 91 film and uh, i got to tell you paul like it's the first episode was pretty hit and miss with me the first two episodes really um the lead actress is quite good uh the first episode her west virginia accent was a little a little dodgy. Um, she, uh, there was a near fatal mistake at the end of the episode when she gives a speech and she notes that she is from Kanawha County, West Virginia. Uh, and if anybody lives in that area, like I used to, I was a stone's throw away. Uh, you know that it's pronounced Kanaw County. Mm-hmm. So it's a minor thing, but at the same time, when you have a scriptwriter and a director and an actor and a team and continuity, like how the fuck these days? How do you miss that? Like. With everything, when all of the world's information is available at your fingertips, how do you fuck something like that up these days? You know, so uh, unless you just don't give that much of a damn, right? Like, that's the concern. And so I got to tell you, I was a little turned off by it. The first episode otherwise was fine. Like, they're obviously trying to... uh, they're trying to sort of live in the world of the Jonathan Demme movie. Like anytime it cuts to a new scene or a new location, you have these sort of, uh, you know, typewriter font coming in at the bottom, telling you where you are just little, you know, touches like that, you know, much like Demme did, he, you know, the, the television show will point the camera right into the actor's eyes and have them deliver dialogue right into the camera, looking right into your soul, you know? So it's kind of neat that they're doing that in a way, but also it kind of feels like a weird copy at times. I don't know that it always felt sincere in the pilot, but I will say this about it. I was afraid that they were going to take that character and essentially just, kind of squeeze the franchise dry and play on, you know, the, the sort of franchise recognition of Clarice Starling and the silence of the lambs and Hannibal Lecter and all of that to essentially just make another police procedural show. Right. And what about serial killers? No less. And like how many times have we seen a show like that? Right. I mean the silence of the lambs kind of launched that genre. I'm pretty sure loads of television shows exist because that movie was made back in the early nineties. And they do something, which I'm not going to reveal, but they do something at the end of the first episode, which you've been watching and thinking that it is a serial killer show. And there's a very interesting, very smart, very clever twist that sort of shifts it away from that and what you expect. And it plays with your expectations a bit. And then as a result, it kind of gives the narrative over to your lead character, you know, the, 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 the character that the show is about, you know, whose title is her name. And I kind of appreciate that. They, that they divorce it so firmly from like, you know, what, what you expect from the world of Hannibal Lecter, you know, it's no longer a world of serial killers or cannibals or, You know, just uh, 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 crazy, smart villains and whatnot, or the grand guignol of it all, right? You know, it's more focused on who that character would be after those events and how she would deal with the trauma and the fallout of that. And then how that would affect her on the job, which isn't always going to be these huge, crazy, like insane cases, right? And honestly right. like the thing that I think they nail I've I've now seen uh, this past week I watched the third and fourth episodes. Do you remember the moment in The Silence of the Lambs early on after she's on the training course and she's running around she winds up in an elevator. Yeah. And she is completely dwarfed by all of the men standing in the yes. elevator behind yeah. her. Right? Yeah. The show seems built from that moment. And I kind of appreciate that. And so I'm 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 digging it now much more than I did initially. And I, am glad that it's kind of, not only is it paying homage to the Jonathan Demme movie, but it's kind of carving out its own identity and doing some really interesting things. So as of right now, like, even though I was kind of, you know, only reluctantly on board, I got to say, I'm very curious to see where the show winds up going.
1: That's cool. I mean, I, I'm curious. I did sign up for, uh, uh Paramount, plus to check it out and i know it's on there so i'll uh i'll i'll try to make some time for it
0: good deal i'm curious
1: to see what you think uh like i said give it
0: if you got to give it a shot try and plow through those first two episodes as quickly as you can
1: uh you know let it yeah. let
0: it work the bugs out before it starts you know finding its footing
1: okay cool very cool um let's see so i had two more that i wanted to talk about um uh the the next one was uh jumping back in time a little bit farther to uh 1939 with The Cat and the Canary. Oh nice. <clears throat> have you ever uh seen that one? I have not. No. So it's a uh Bob Hope uh movie. Uh sort of a horror comedy of that time. Where it, kind of a, a very familiar plot, which I guess at the time probably wasn't maybe as familiar as it is now. Although <laughs> it, it itself was a remake of a silent film what? that apparently was more horror than this was. Yeah, like it's a twenty like a 1920s silent film called Cat in the Canary exists, and this was a remake of that. Um, and basically, it's uh, ten years after the death of a millionaire. Um, and in his will, it said, you know, uh, my everything has to be waited for 10 years and then all six of the surviving relatives have to come to his manor in New, or- New Orleans and, and the will will be read and it'll be revealed sort of who inherits everything um, and it'll go into place at midnight that night. Right. And so they come and they read the will. And everybody obviously is sort of in it for themselves. And um, the person's announced who's going to be inheriting everything. And then, like, the superstitious housekeeper is there. And it's like part of it is they all have to stay overnight at that house. And uh, the superstitious housekeeper is kind of like predicts that someone's going to be dead at midnight. And so, all these things are happening that are like spooky things. And Bob Hope plays a guy who's actually an actor in the context of the film. And he's an actor in horror movies. So it's weirdly meta for the time that it came out. Like, I don't, I didn't know that they really made meta horror movies back then. Cause he's basically calling the shots of what's going to happen next. He's like, ah, this is just like in the movies. I in. I mean, in a second, the phone's going to ring and then the phone rings, you know, kind of thing. And, he, and, uh, And then the the thing that the movie did that really surprised me was they introduced this other element. So like you have all these people in the house and you think that someone's going to murder the girl who like is the sole inheritor of everything. um, So that way someone else can inherit the stuff. Well, then it's revealed that nearby at like a mental institution, a maniac has escaped that night and is out in the bayou around this mansion. So on top of like, the weird sort of goings on in the house where you can't really trust anyone. There's also like a psychopathic killer who's like escaped and is nearby this house and might be, you know, could potentially break in and kill somebody. So you have like all these weird disparate horror elements that are kind of just like going around uh, the the story while Bob Hope just kind of walks through the movie sort of like commenting on it and being afraid. And it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> It's just a really like it's a really light good time, you know. And I mean this movie God Bless It is like 72 minutes. It's so breezy, it's so quick. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Um it, it's funny, it, you know, Bob Hope is at the top of his game. This is, you know, it's 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 great. So it, I if if you've if you've never checked out, you know, a movie from that time period or or you want like an easy in this is just a really fun, enjoyable uh step into that time that that feels surprisingly modern in my opinion with how self-referential it is. No, that's kind of
0: amazing. I'm wondering given the uh given the time period like I would this be one of the first
1: meta movies ever? I mean, maybe. I'd have to research it, but I I personally can't think of something you know, before 1939, (laughs) you know, it's almost at that point, what are they
0: calling back to? What are they referencing? There's so little film. Right.
1: Well, it's very, it's very like old haunted house type of movie, you know, like old dark house. It's very, it's very old dark house. Like, and that movie is comedic as well, but this is on a different level. This is on a snappy sort of his girl Friday kind of level, you know? Um oh, okay. not a to see this then. Yeah, it's it's very um yeah, it's just really fun. I had a really good time with it. Uh now and granted, I like I like movies of that time period. I, I love black and white films. I love uh you know I, I like Bob Hope a lot. Um he made a couple of movies, like another one from around that same time is uh that people don't seem to like as much, but is still fun, is Ghost uh, Ghostbreakers. Um, and these were both last year uh, restored and put out on Blu-ray by Kino Lorber. Um, so and and they were recently on sale. Uh, I don't know if they are anymore, but I know Amazon had them both for like 12 bucks, which isn't bad. Um, so like definitely worth uh, checking out. Hey, Paul, if you could just fill the dead
0: air for another minute or two, I am on Amazon um, looking up. <laughs> so you think I'm joking, but I'm actually bringing – oh, 12 dollars And uh, let's see. Just going to go ahead and uh, finalize this. There you go. See? Okay. Oh, there just it is. Done. You know,
1: it's grace. <laughs> I'm
0: looking this up. So the movie you're talking about is 1939. It's amazing to me that it's a remake of a movie that had come out only 12 years before. Like that's, that's stunning to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, there were, that was a thing, you know, what, when, when sound came into play, they were, they started remaking silent films with sound, you know, even Hitchcock did it to his own movie, you know? Um, well, I guess, yeah, uh, no, there was, he remade, no, the one he remade did have sound, but I thought he remade one of his silent films too. I could be wrong on that. Um, but like he remade, um, uh, um, the, uh, Oh, shit. What's the the man who knew too much was a remake. Yeah, there's a 50s version and there's a uh, like a 40s or 30s version, I think. But that wasn't silent. But still, like a lot of people back then were sort of like looking at the silent era and how those movies could be shifted into the sound era or the color era later. You know, um, so but it is interesting because we think about remakes now. as like, oh, Hollywood's out of ideas as if it's like a new thing Um, (laughs) when they've been remaking movies like for as long as there's been movies. So, uh, yeah, I have no issue with I'm not a remake hater. Personally, I actually like a lot of remakes.
0: You know, it's funny, man. I remember growing up in the 90s reading Fango and the first time I ever sort of saw that kind of backlash against remakes, it was leading up to uh, the Psycho remake in 98 and you know i i couldn't help but get swept up in all of that you know being kind of a burgeoning fan of the genre like you know seeing older people on message boards or you know in the letters pages of fango sort of decrying you know this remaking of a masterpiece and so yeah i'll admit it i was one of those guys who was like yeah boo you know and uh and then you see the psycho remake and you know that just sort of uh that bolstered that opinion, you know, <laughs> like it, well, it's hard to cry foul, you know, after like, you know, you see it, and it's just kind of like, oh, well, clearly they were right for decrying this in the first place. But I got to say, like, you know, I probably held to that for the next decade. You know, anytime I would hear that a Dawn of the Dead was being remade, a Texas Chainsaw was remade, a Halloween was remade, you know, my knee jerk reaction was always to call you know sort of cry foul and say no damn it why you know why are there no original movies being made blah 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 blah. but you know i wound up liking all of this or at least appreciating all of them on some level uh even the ones that maybe weren't that great and then you know i it, the more i learned about genre film history you know when i would move from say you know the universal classics that i loved as a kid revisiting those and then moving on to hammer it's like well wait a second. You know, twenty twenty-five years after all of the Universal movies, all of those characters were revisited again. You know, um Hamlet was not only staged, you know, once and then forgotten about. You know, people restage and retell the same stories over and over and over and over and over again. So, you know, why not you know, why not remake stuff? You know, why not yeah. give it a shot? I I do tend to agree though that I wish the sort of remakes that we saw we would see more often than not would be remakes of movies that maybe didn't work so well the first time around as opposed to remaking movies that are great. But even then still like, man, I got to tell you, I just, I'm not that reactionary anymore. I hear something, you know, is getting remade. I'm just kind of like, okay, all right, I'll watch it probably, you know, it's cool. I I think
1: it's, I think it's a way of keeping things alive. Um, and, and bringing it to new audiences, you know, one thing that is incredibly true that a lot of people, uh, who defend remakes say, and that I agree with is that a remake doesn't get rid of the original. The original still exists. It will always exist. It'll be what it is. You know, it, it can't be hurt by a remake. I mean, you could say that maybe a remake could do like so much damage to a property that it hurts the overall franchise or something along those lines, but, but, but I don't when really. Did that ever happen? <laughs> right no I don't just dis- I don't subscribe to that I mean, well I mean you could argue that like there are franchise killers I think that there's examples of that like I mean the but at the same time like you mentioned the psycho remake like I think the reason the psycho remake doesn't work clearly is because it isn't a new vision it's like somebody trying to ape an existing vision and that's just not going to work like I we still don't need think, that as
0: bad as I agree with you I think as bad as that movie is though I think it's one of the most important movies in all of all of cinema.
1: Oh, yeah, I would show it in film school. I would show it. I would show it back to back. I actually think I I think one thing film schools would do well to do is show failures alongside the classics yes um you know like i would love to go to a class where they show me cabin fever and the cabin fever remake back to back yes and, re- and we read the script and we talk about why one works and one doesn't yeah um, no with know, psycho think...
0: absolutely and I'm, I'm so glad that you said cabin fever too because it's the exact same thing you look it's at those same two, situation yeah yeah those two movies where you know i look at psycho 98 you know it's terrible but what's terrible about it? Is it the screenplay, which is also the exact same screenplay as you know that of a masterpiece? Right. Uh, is it the cast, which is actually a damned fine cast? Oh, the great movie cast. Is, The movie is shot by Christopher Doyle, who is one of the best cinematographers to ever you know apply his trade. It had a healthy budget. It had a proven director who has made really, really good movies. So what is it that's so terrible about that movie? He even used the same shot list. That yeah. Hitchcock did right, and then you see it there's something there's that x factor, there's something about the movie's soul that's just wrong in that 98 movie, and uh, that better than any like film school course or textbook or you know explanation you can give watching those two movies back to back can better show you how important it is, how very important to a film's success is like it's director's own personal vision and connection to the material, like Van Zant was a fan of that story because he had seen it done by somebody else. Whereas Hitchcock, you know, his obsessions, the thing that drove him as an artist, that's what infuses that movie. The movie that we know is a masterpiece. Now right. I wouldn't say that Eli Roth's cabin fever is a masterpiece, but I do think <laughs> for
1: what it's setting out to try and do, well, I think it is
0: successful.
1: Yeah. And, it, and, and know, I, and so I love good. it. I mean, for yeah. me, masterpiece is such a weird word, you know, cause it's like for, at the end of the day, you're what you individually are drawn towards. Like, For me, Cabin Fever might as well be a masterpiece. I love it. It's it's a great movie. I I really, it's one of my favorite of that time period. I saw it honestly, and I I think I've talked about this before, so I apologize if I have. Cabin Fever is probably a big reason why I'm a horror fan. That movie literally was a spark that led me to other things because I saw Cabin Fever in the theater because it was a big movie, like it was getting a lot of play. And I remember sitting there watching it and not understanding a lot of what it was doing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being like super confused. Like like all the humor and the weird quirkiness and like the music as like the water trucks are driving away at the like the weird kind of upbeat music. Like there was just kind of weird stuff in it, weird imagery and weird tonal shifts. And I was like, I don't know what language this movie is speaking, but I know it <laughs> is a language. I know it's something that can be understood. It's just that I don't get it. So I, and so what's weird is I didn't love it the first time I saw it, but I was, I was fascinated by it. And so I went home and I started researching it and I was reading interviews with him about his influences. And he was talking about George Romero and Sam Raimi and all these different directors. And then I was like, well, let me go watch some of these movies and try to figure out what the fuck Kevin Fever was doing. And because of that, I checked out, like, Night of the Living Dead and and the Dead Trilogy, and that got me into horror. And so, like, my path to horror really kind of was because of Cabin Fever. Like, I owe that movie my horror fandom, potentially. Um, Not because it's better than the other movies that I ended up falling in love with or that, you know... But because it got me to go there. And I think like when a director or a creator is is making a movie influenced by, those, by things that influence them, that's probably part of their hope is that it will lead people to these other things. I'm sure when Gus Van Sant remade Psycho, his hope was that it would lead people to Hitchcock. You know, I mean, you don't shot for shot remake a Hitchcock film if you don't hope that people discover Hitchcock off of it. So, I'm, I, you know, I think that's the ultimate goal. So, on that level, for me, you know, Kevin Fever's is a masterpiece because it allowed me to get to those things. But, you know, I, I think on a, if you look at movies in a vacuum, you know, it's not going to be, I don't say like, oh, Citizen Kane and then Kevin Fever. <laughs> it's not, but it's all relative. You know what I mean? No, no, I think that's
0: fair. I do like that movie. Uh, and I, I agree with you. It would be fascinating to run that back to back with the uh, 2015, 2016 remake, um, which is, yeah. um, you know, it's, it, it sure is interesting.
1: I hated it. <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, not to shit on a movie. I, I, I just, I really hate it. it. I just, I didn't think anything worked in it. I, I It was just, it was very interesting. How how something like, again, you could take a screenplay and just nothing works. And we watched it. My brother and I do uh, themes every October when we get together and we watch like, you know, one year we did a number like only part twos like we'd only watched part twos. In horror franchises, and then like one year we did uh originals and their remakes in a series of double features. And one of the double features we did was the two back Kevin Fevers back to back on the same night, and it was just so interesting uh <laughs> to see those two back to back. But anyway, um, man, I got off topic. <laughs> no, you're good. Okay, so where we? Uh, you said you had two movies to go through. What was oh, your, uh, okay. Second? So the final one is one we already briefly talked about, but I know you've seen it, so I thought it would be a good one to round it out with, which is Monster Hunter. Yes, I finally watched Monster Hunter. It's going to be our uh,
0: our second week talking about. Uh, some Paul W.S. Anderson and Mila Jovovich joints, man. Yeah,
1: and it's kind of serendipitous that I just watched the entire Resident Evil franchise because this kind of feels like a spiritual successor to that franchise, given that um, Mila Jovovich is the main character in it, and it's it does, it feels very much stylistically like those latter three movies. Um, You know, so far that it doesn't even really I mean, it, it does it (sighs) okay so i really enjoyed it um it was fun uh it's uh, basic premise is there's a world where there are monsters um there's our world sort of parallel to it i suppose and through a series of kind of inexplicable events um a bunch of soldiers are sort of cast into this uh world of monsters and they kind of have to survive um so most of the film, it's a pretty simple movie. There's not much that happens in it insofar as I, I almost wish there had been a bit more plot, uh, which is not something I normally look for in a big monster movie. I don't usually care <laughs> too much about the plot, but I almost wish like there had been a bit of an explanation around like what the hell was going on. Like, what is this world? What is this tower they're trying to get to? Like nothing, like, She's there. There's a big tower and there are some caves and she gets stuck in the caves because there are these monsters. They're going to eat her. There's a sort of another survivor guy that's also living around these caves and he kind of helps her out. And together they try to get to this tower. And that is like the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, it's there. The positives are the monsters are very well done. Uh, very cool it's you know, the CGI at this point has gotten so impressive, um, really giant, awesome fight sequences and things like that. Uh, the effects are really good. Uh, as always, um, Mila Jovovich is very, very good in her role and uh, her co-star was pretty awesome. Um, what what's oh, oh, it's Tony, uh, Tony Ja Yeah, Tony Ja. Um, he was great. I thought he was really funny. Uh, one conceit I liked about the movie was that since he was from another world, he couldn't speak English and she couldn't speak his language. So like they couldn't they had to communicate through like pantomime and just kind of how they were interacting. And that was kind of a fun element of it. There's some actually pretty decent character development when they're like alone at night in like the cave he lives in. And I also sort of dug that it wasn't a romantic thing like they were just sort of friends and i liked that there was no romantic pressure on the movie that felt kind of like a refreshing deviation from what you would probably normally see in a big budget action movie like this um but yeah i my my one as i said my one sort of issue with it was i don't know that the movie gave me enough to to really know what it was trying to like i don't know that it didn't feel like a movie it felt like a pilot It felt like a pilot to a TV show where it's like, we're going to give you the rest of this later. Like, cause it doesn't have a full on ending. The third act kind of ends like 60% of the way through what I felt like the third act should probably be. Um, But I, I imagine that was on purpose, you know, like he wants it. He clearly wants there to be a franchise. Um, But I always like my movies to kind of stand alone as their own, Things. So I think like that was the only complaint I had, but it's minor. It's a minor quibble.
0: Yeah, it definitely feels like a franchise starter, but you know, I it just happened to hit in the year of COVID. So who knows whether or not it was able to make enough money, or at least indicate that it might have made enough money right. that we'll yeah, even get sure. follow-ups. Uh, I hope we do because even though I agree with you, and it is definitely plot light, and uh, you know, it's not without its problems, certainly. But the movie is just so much damn fun. It is it is just superior popcorn entertainment to me. And I think Anderson gets so little credit for what he does. Right. I think it's easy to take pot shots at the guy, uh, for doing video game adaptations. You know, I remember going all the way back to the late nineties. People would like to rip on him, you know, say like, you know, he, he was the worst Paul Anderson, you know, or, uh, you know, his (laughs) initials, people would say like, Oh, the W S stands for what script, you know, shit like that. Uh... Like, I'm like, you're, you're, this, and I, I maintain this, like, if this guy had made the exact same types of movies that he does now, that he has for the last 20, 25 years, if he had made them back in the 70s or so, you know, if he had done his, uh, his fun zombie movies, if he had done his sci-fi action flick, if he had done his period swashbuckler, uh, or his, uh, his big monster flick, you know, People by all those same assholes who like to snark on the guy would be lavishing all the praise in the on the you know in the world on the the Blu-ray re-releases of all of his movies today. You know, like I, oh, yeah. I, I honestly yeah. believe that. You know, his Death Race, if it had been made back in the seventies, you know, we we would be buying the Arrow special edition of it and just fawning over it. Right, I I do think he makes just wonderful grindhouse fair, but there's something about it where, you know what, he, somehow, some way the guy cracked the code and he is making B movie fair and grindhouse fair at the studio level. You know, he's making stuff that should probably be low budget, but he's making it with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I say good on him, especially considering oh, yeah. these are by and large, just enjoyable as hell. And I think he's, I think he's a smarter director than people give him credit for. You know, going back to Death Race, there's so many quiet little moments in that movie that get lost, admittedly, in the sort of, uh, you know, the blood and thunder and the, you know, just the the, the noise, uh, which is, again, all very fun. But there are a lot of quiet moments. There are a lot of shots. There are a lot of moments that land when you don't even necessarily realize that they do. You know, early on, like when the lead – ah, I'm not going to get into Death Race. Never mind. I'm diverting from this conversation. <laughs> you know, I've never, this, but... I've never
1: seen his Death Race, so I have to check it out. I've I never think seen it's, it. I think And I like, I like Death Race 2000. I'm a fan of Corman's Death Race. So I, uh, I, I, I will watch that. I just got the notification that my Scream Factory uh, Event Horizon shipped. Yes. Okay, so I'm, good. I'm pretty excited to see that again. I, I mean, I know I'm sad that it's not the uh, cut we had all hoped, but I, you know, just see a new version of it uh, with, uh, I think he did some interviews and stuff, so maybe he'll shed some light on uh, what that could have been. But no, I'm a huge uh, Paul W.S. Fan, Anderson fan, and uh, yeah, I thought, I, I mean, Monster Hunter was a very good time. It, it's cool. It's weird that we got two like crazy big monster movies this year, like with that and uh, <laughs> Love and Monsters. And and admittedly, Love and Monsters is way more my jam, you know, because I'm somebody that's, I I love, I love a good emotional kick to the heart. Uh, And that movie was, was that, Uh, but it it was cool to see the other, this was sort of like the other way to do a monster movie. You know, it's like love and monsters and this are two sides of a coin in a way. Um, And I thought like, it's cool that we got those two things this year. And it's also kind of sad because I wish those movies had gotten the chance to be box office hits.
0: I do too, man. And I think they would have been, I think both of them would have done very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I gotta tell you, like I, I, mentioned the whole second COVID shot, like, man, I, I keep driving by my local AMC and they still have the poster for monster hunter up. And I'm like, just hold on, hold on long <laughs> enough for me to be in the
1: clear. And I will be there. I will be there yeah, money would, in man, hand to watch that be, damn thing. On the, It would screen. be a really cool movie to see in the theater. Yeah. I, I, I look forward to the day when I can return to a movie theater. I don't know when it will be for me but uh uh someday <laughs> maybe someday the end soon. of this year maybe oh. for halloween kills that's my hope
0: yes and candy don't forget candy Candyman.
1: candy <laughs> yeah well I, I mean at this point is Candyman ever gonna come out i don't even know you know it's like i don't know
0: man i personally i think that you know what 2020 was tough enough on people like i feel like and I get that the filmmakers wanted to hold on to those movies. I understand. But damn it, you could have thrown them out on VOD. You could have done it, guys. Yeah, that, that's what it. I,
1: I think that everyone should have just given in to what that year was and done VOD. I think they all would have made a lot of money. We all would have paid for it. All, yeah. Every horror fan on Twitter would have paid 20 hell, 30 for Candyman. We all would have done it. 30. And, Paul and I would have dropped 50 without batting an yeah, eye we all would have done it and I that's my thing is I don't get you know I don't get it I don't get why we didn't get a chance the only one I understand holding on to is Halloween because that had that proved itself to have such wide-reaching potential outside of just horror fans um but like I don't know that the Halloween sequel, like I think this Halloween became an event movie because of Jamie Lee Curtis, because of the iconography of the character. We haven't had a big character like that return in a while. Like if you think about it, there hasn't been a Freddy movie in a long time. There hasn't been a Jason movie in a long time. This is the first time like an iconic character came back in a movie that was more accessible. Because like them or not, or whether you love them or hate them, Rob Zombie's films are not very accessible movies to no, people outside of horror. Whereas this was made, really made to be incredibly accessible. Um, And I think it reached into other demographics that don't normally go to horror movies. And I think that's why it made so much money. So I get why you'd want to like hold on to that. But I think something like Candyman, and this is no slight to Candyman. I'm very excited for Nia Dacosta's Candyman. um, But I think that's going to be a little more niche and catered towards horror fans. I don't know that the average moviegoer is like, oh, cool, a new Candyman movie you know what i mean i don't i don't know that it's that popular of a character or title um, as, as something like michael myers would be uh, so i think vod wouldn't have heard its returns really i do wonder if it had more to do
0: with potential for follow ups you know once yet how often has it ever happened where a franchise went direct to video and then made it back to theaters has a franchise ever begun direct to video or VOD and then made the leap to theatrical with well, the, the the follow-up right like I'm wondering I, I would if like f-
1: to cite the high school musical franchise sir
0: <laughs> you know because, we're
1: 53 minutes in let's just get to the because high here. school musical one and two were made for tv <laughs> and high school musical three went to theaters so the okay. precedent has right. been set. The precedent Fine. has been set. Uh you you did not specify horror franchise, you just said franchise. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I've
0: been told. Jeez. No, but I do wonder. I do wonder if that was a concern where You know, Candyman is, you know, is Candyman going to be a one-off or is it going to be like a franchise restarter? If it's the latter, then I understand why they would want that first movie to play theaters. You know, Halloween Kills obviously is going to have a follow-up in the form of Halloween Ends. So would it make sense for them to go VOD with the second movie and then theatrical with the third? I don't know. I think people would understand because of the weird fucking year that 2020 was – Um, you know, I, I almost would think like the way to, if I ran Hollywood, uh, you know, but having worked at a movie theater for 15 years and whatever the fuck I learned from that, if anything at all, but I got to say, had I been in that position and been calling shots, why not go ahead and release Halloween kills a week before Halloween, put it out for 20 or 30 bucks, a rental, You know, make your money that way. Go ahead and release the damn Blu-ray in 4K in January or February. Clean up there. And then, damn it, right before Halloween ends is due out, this coming Halloween, re-release Halloween Kills to theaters a week or two in advance of that and lead up to it. Or have double feature shows or something like that.
1: Yeah. I would 100% go to that.
0: Yeah, I mean... You you would have dropped... You and me and everybody we know... would drop thirty bucks for that rental. We would have bought the damn four K, yes, and then yeah. our asses would have gone back to the theaters to see it on the big screen because we missed it that way the first time around.
1: Yeah, well, and their their fear is piracy. I mean, that's what it's coming down to. Is the minute it goes on VOD, it's going to get pirated. It's going to show up on torrent sites, and then the average person is going to watch it that way. And the question is, how much is that going to hurt returns? Um, on a movie like Halloween, it would probably hurt them. Significantly, On a movie like Candyman, I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't know that the people that would... I think the same people that would go see Candyman in the theater would VOD it. That's how I feel. I feel like in Halloween, I think it's a pretty widespread... I don't know, but how many, you know, that's the thing with Candyman, and it's easy to just sit here and speculate on a podcast. Oh, but yeah. I'm, well, I'm we wondering, don't, I don't like, know who, what the fuck I'm talking about. In, in no, no way am I, like, judging I, anybody. It's just more, these are off-the-cuff thoughts. I, exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, I,
0: and I want to make it clear is that I count myself in that, like, I don't know either. But, you know, I'm wondering how much of the audience is going to be the hard horror fans who are going to watch anything, and they're going yeah. to watch Right? I'm wondering how many people are going to go see it because they were Gen Xers who loved seeing the original movie when they were kids back in the early 90s, and they're going to want to go see the new one. And then I wonder how much of the audience, you know, we can account for the mainstreamers certainly, but then how much of the audience is going to be there? And here's the thing. I acknowledge and accept and have championed the fact. Like, fuck, early on, uh, right after it was announced, I wrote a Candyman article and I made certain to point it out. Because it's the right thing to do that, in fact, it was Nia DaCosta's Candyman. I understand that. But what I'm about to say I think is valid, too. How many people are going to show up to the theater because they love to get out and because they loved us and because sure. of Jordan Hill's association with the movie? that's going to be considerable. I think and that's
1: why his name is plastered all over the movie. Like it's, it's, it's a marketing thing, you know, I I mean, it's, I I agree with everything you just said. I mean, it's the end film and it's very frustrating the way it's been uh, handled in media coverage because it's, it's yeah. But, um, but we all know why (laughs) Jordan Peele's being, you know, plastered all over that movie. Um, and 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 for good reason. I mean, he's obviously "Get Out" and "Us" are both phenomenal movies. I, as we talked about, I think we talked about these movies last week somehow. If I recall we correctly, did. yes, we did. Um, so I mean, yeah, it's. I, I am incredibly excited for Candyman. I'm 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 incredibly excited for Halloween Kills. Um, it, it's, and 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 some of this is more just me being disappointed. I couldn't watch them last year when I felt like I wanted to watch them. I, I do worry that some of the excitement gets beaten out of you a little bit the more it gets dragged out.
0: Yep. I uh-huh. didn't by the time I finally got around to seeing it Paul, I didn't give a rat's ass about watching Saint Maud. And uh-huh. when I first saw that trailer yeah. in the theaters a year ago, yeah. I I was all about it. Could not wait. Give me that movie, and then by the time I haven't even watched watched
1: it it yet, it's like I I could watch it, and I just haven't. And I was so excited, and now I'm worried, like that it's been overhyped, and there's a lot of there's a real problem. That's a problem with a lot of festival movies. Is by the time they reach you, they've been so hyped up that you're like, how could this possibly? You know, versus when you first saw it, the reason the people probably liked it so much is they didn't know what it was. You know, they had no hype. They just walked into a random movie and was like, oh, I really like that. And then really liked that over the course of a year and a half where you're like, oh, this was good. Watch it. And then, like, when it becomes something you can't watch, it's like, oh, you got to see this because you can't see it. You know, and then suddenly it's this huge thing to where when you finally do see it, you're like, oh, that's a good horror movie. <laughs> you know, not some game-changing situation. Yes. Yeah, it, it's exactly that. St. Maude is a good movie. It
0: is – uh it's not a game changer. It's not a, uh, you know, greatly performance. Great movie. Yeah. I, I will say it's barely even. And, and I don't care. Like this is not even knocking the movie because I don't give a rat's ass about assigning it a label in such a way anyway, sure. but genre fans who are going to go in having watched that trailer, expecting a horror movie with capital H they're probably going to be a little disappointed and it is not why they were pushing that. Like it was going to be last year's hereditary or Midsommar, like is beyond me because it is not that movie. Like it's, it's good. It is a good film but it's a heavy character study with very few genre trappings. I will say that it has one single hellacious scare in it that is maybe one of the most effective fucking jump scares I have ever seen in a movie, oh, ever. Wow. Like, awesome. ever, ever, Paul? But that and then maybe the following five minutes is all that accounts for what you would consider core in it. Um, so that they thought they were... that. A24 held on to it for the longest time because they thought that was going to be their next big horror film. That was going to be their new witch or that was going to be their new hereditary is frankly fucking beyond me. And then ultimately what happened? They held on to it for the longest time. It frustrated the living hell out of fans like you and me. And then what did they do? They dumped it on the fucking epics and the picture quality is is utter dog shit. Like, it, yeah. it's astonishing how bad that movie looks. That's crazy. I, I wish I had held out. And if you haven't seen it yet, Paul, I would actually implore you, I would encourage you at least, to just hold off until the movie eventually hits Blu-ray. And
1: yeah, that's... It's going to look
0: damn sight better, trust me.
1: That's what I'm going to do. And I'm surprised it hasn't hit Blu-ray yet. And I'm mad because it turns out there was a UK Blu-ray like months ago. That, yep. that was just out and I didn't know. And like now it's out of print for some reason. So I can't, I was like, Oh, I'll just get that. Cause I'm region free. And like now that one Blu-ray that came out is already out of print, which is really weird that a movie that new is out of print.
0: Likely if um, I had to guess, and this is purely me guessing if I had to imagine it's out of print because uh, the initial release was a steel case, I got to imagine they're going to release a standard edition of it soon enough.
1: Yeah. And when they do, I'll, I'll pick that up and that's how I'll watch it. So, I mean, but yeah, it's crazy to me that like, I can watch it right now and I'm just not (laughs) because there was a time where I would have jumped on that so fast. Oh my God. At the beginning of last summer,
0: like, again, it would have been another one of those situations. We were all starved for content and anything to talk about online, anything to distract us from the hell that was 2020 and you know, I would have thrown twenty or thirty bucks at it to watch it on a weekend. And instead, you know, it was just one of those things that became more and more and more annoying uh, the further it went. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. But right. it is. But the movie is good. The movie is good. Cool. All right, Paul. We are over an hour into the conversation. We always do this. We always say <laughs> yeah, maybe thirty minutes, maybe forty-five, and then we're, cut to an we're, hour uh, fifteen. Minutes. We're not
1: reliable narrators. <laughs> we're,
0: we're not at all, at all, Paul. But i tell you what, so this evening, folks, we are... Why am I introducing this movie? You've seen the title of the episode. You know we're doing and the Mad Monk. So tell you what, go ahead and get your disc ready. I don't even know if this movie is streaming anymore. I haven't even bothered to check simply because, well, the last several Hammer movies I've tried finding online just don't exist. So i got to tell you, I am watching the the Scream Factory edition. Paul, I'm going to go ahead and make an assumption and say that you
1: are too. Uh, yes, I am. I've Good got the stream in here, and I can look online on my app, and it I is can... not streaming anywhere. I was going to say
0: I was getting ready to check Just Watch. So. It's,
1: I just, I'm on Just Watch, and oh, it says it's streaming on something called Dark Matter TV with ads what? in the... standard definition. Yeah, so that's uh, a big no. Um <laughs>
0: <laughs> so folks out there, you either own the Anchor Bay edition from 20 years ago or you own the Scream Factory edition. If you don't, uh, you know what? I don't even know if you folks out there actually watch these movies and listen to these commentaries as they run. Maybe just listen to them as normal podcasts. Um, if so, cool. Rock on uh in any case we're gonna get it started up here in just a moment now paul are we gonna watch the uh standard aspect ratio are we gonna watch the uh alternate 255 to one aspect ratio is there some sort of weird ass snyder cut 133 ratio like available here what's going on (laughs)
1: uh i have it on the standard aspect ratio the movie was one of the last uh well might even be the last to be shot in a uh, uh cinemascope, which a lot of movies weren't like, they weren't using those lenses anymore at this time. So it's kind of weird that it was because they were, they were antiquated lenses that actually caused some weird artifacting. So that's why there's different aspect ratios available. The, I think the two five five is going to be the more like the accurate ratio to how it was shot, but it's, not going to look quite as good on the screen. Uh, So the version that is queued up to be standard is like sort of the one that hammer signed off on. If that makes sense.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and queue it up here. I'm going to move to, let's see, we're just going to get to the point when we see the 20th century Fox logo peeking through. All right, grand orchestral music is about to begin. Okay, let's do a countdown, everyone. Here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. Paul, I see this logo anymore. I think we're getting an X
1: Men film. That's fair. That's fair. Or Star Wars. Well, I guess not Star Wars anymore. But I, I was going to say ass- no. I mean, no, here's the thing: <laughs> I still associate 20th Century Fox with Star Wars. I that's can't fair. ever remove that from my brain.
0: For me, it's uh, X-Men and that little X just being a little bit brighter. As oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. That was bit. cool. Now, Paul, why is it when this opens? Like, this does not look like a Hammer title sequence to me. This no. looks like universal-like horror to me for some reason. Like, this this is full-on Phantom of the Opera with Claude
1: Rains to me. Well, it's, it's funny you mention that because I was going to say it, it – it from the get go, this movie feels like it's trying to be a bit classier. Like it, like it wants to be, um, a big budget period piece when it's not that at all, you know? (laughs) Um, and which is funny because later there's, there's even like an insert shot from a big budget studio film to make the movie look bigger budget. Yeah. I'll point it out when we get there. Um, but, uh, Yeah, I I think this was a movie that they kind of, the initial thought was to make it a little more prestige, um, and it's dressed up like a prestige film, but it's really unfortunate because, the, I mean, its budget was really, really hurt and cut down, and a lot of stuff had to be excised from the script at the very last moment, which... Which is why some of the character stuff later in the film doesn't make like a ton of sense. Is that by virtue of the fact that this was probably near the very end
0: of that production run of those four films that were sort of made yeah. Back, yeah. Back, right?
1: So this movie yeah took the brunt of the problematic nature in which they shot these movies, and it's funny because we've talked about this. I guess now. Have we done all four of the movies? This is number four. And I just want to point out,
0: maybe faster than any other movie we've done so far, boom, we are already in a hammer pub.
1: Yeah, and if if you pay close attention, uh, this is the exact same pub that's in Prince of Darkness, like (laughs) not even really different at all. And that is a common thread in this film is that uh, this was shot back-to-back. Uh, Prince of Darkness wrapped filming less than a week before this started shooting. Oh, wow. So, like, they didn't really have time. So most of the sets in this film are just Prince of Darkness sets. And uh, the cast is the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got Barbara, Barbara Shelley, you've got Suzanne Farmer, you've got Francis Matthews, um, and, of course, we have Christopher Lee. Uh, so. Um, but yeah, no, this was, this took the brunt of a lot of the over budget things that happened with Prince of darkness. And the biggest one was funny enough, them buying the rights to the opening of horror of Dracula. Cause you know, Prince of darkness opens with that horror of Dracula flashback that, uh, that cost hammer like 25 grand and they just took you that
0: you are shitting me. no
1: no it cost $25,000 to buy the rights to that from uh, a universal or whoever held i think it was universal my and goodness. uh and they just took that money out of rasputin so can I, can I ask you then, Paul? I didn't know that. I knew that it cost them a bit of
0: money. I knew that they had to do some wonky stuff to cover up the fact that it was shot in a different aspect ratio. What is it that we need about that opening sequence that couldn't have been handled in the narrative I, of the film
1: itself? I think it's... Knowing that and knowing that it hurt a different movie that like could have been better because of it, Like, I don't think that makes any sense at all. But the producers were it's convinced... Crazy. The audiences needed to be reminded of what happened to, uh, uh, to Dracula. And it's funny because, like, Lee didn't even really want to do... Oh, and we should mention that now Lee is already in the picture. And my God, his look in this movie is amazing.
0: Um, it's astonishing. You know, I did a little bit of research on the actual Rasputin. And it's crazy how much he looks like the actual guy. How much they've made
1: him look like the actual man. Yeah, it's right. Like the makeup work, Roy Ashton did the makeup on this and like right down to um, his skin, which has like wind burns on it. um, Because this is all supposed to take place in uh, Siberia. uh, Even though like I was listening to a bit of the commentary and they were talking about they have the original screenplay and there's like a lot more information in the screenplay than ever is shown on screen like there was supposed to be like title cards saying where they were and stuff like that but don sharp i guess decided not to put any of that stuff in um but yeah so he's got like wind burns on his face i love the the like it all looks very natural like he looks and he's very intimidating you know like this is a movie that really plays to christopher lee's um physicality um and and just the way he uses his hands and and the intensity of his stare, like it, you, I was finding myself like enraptured. Like you believe that this man can hypnotize people. He,
0: you know, it's funny. Like having watched these movies in order, all the hammer films. Now, obviously we know that Christopher Lee is an amazing actor, right? But, You know, up until this point, what have we seen him in? You know, we've seen him in a couple of Dracula movies. We've seen him, uh, in, uh, the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. We've seen him in, uh, you know, the mummy, of course, always putting in great work, right? Always, always, always giving a fantastic performance or the performance that's needed. Certainly he's charismatic as all hell, uh, you know, knows how to deliver a line. Certainly watching this movie and you know, obviously we know that he will eventually become like an amazing actor. If he had only ever done the wicker man, like my God, you know, that performance, but watching all these movies in order and then seeing this falling into line, you know, behind all of the others that had happened up Mm -hmm. until this point, I, it really occurred to me that this is the first movie I think, at least so far as hammer goes, that really gave Lee the opportunity to stretch some acting muscles that he hadn't before. Because he—he he is his performance in this movie is fucking fierce. Like, he yeah. is fantastic in this movie, and playing a man that he has never really... You know, I, I don't think there's anything remotely analogous to this. I don't think he's ever played a character like this before since. At least not that I've seen. Well, and he's just fucking fantastic. And you talk about this being a bit more of a prestige movie. Like, this is totally... This is Hammer's Oscar bait movie. You know, this is yeah. um and damn it, if he shouldn't have deserved um almost certain more attention and more praise than he likely got for it.
1: Yeah, well, and and you're absolutely right. And I was I was floored by I mean, the movie has problems. <laughs> There's some narrative problems, but Christopher Lee in this film like this this might be This might be my favorite performance of his that I've seen, uh, which really surprised me. I wasn't expecting that. Um, And I will say, like, he was very passionate about doing this movie. And in fact, the only reason he did Prince of Darkness was because they were going to let him do this. That, That was how they got Prince of Darkness made. So this this movie doesn't happen without Prince of Darkness and Prince of Darkness doesn't happen without this. They're intrinsically tied to one another. Um, and and so, you know, I think part of the reason his performance is so powerful is that he was very personally invested in playing this character. And even later on in life, like, I read some quotes from Lee where he literally said, like, one of the quotes was, like, Rasputin is one of the best things I've ever done. Um, so he even felt that this was one of his – it's not his favorite. I mean, he always said that uh, Wicker Man, Wicker I think, Man. was his favorite. But he did say that this was – one of the best performances he ever gave in his eyes. Um, and he also felt really like he, I think he believed, I mean, he was, he was a religious man. He, he believed that Rasputin had healing powers and that he was a complicated person and that he saw both sides of who Rasputin was like that. He was a saint and a sinner. Um, And he, and he had weird things in his real life where he had actually met, like when when lee was a kid he met the guy who who killed Rasputin <laughs> really yeah and like he also met he met like other people related to yeah like he he actually had like a lifelong interest in Rasputin that went beyond his acting career and just more into a personal fascination with with the man um and you know so he was Like, that was a personal goal of his, to play Rasputin. And Hammer was aware of that. And they leveraged it to get him to come back as Dracula. That's a big reason why this movie happened. And why the budget was cut. Because they were willing to put money into Dracula, but not willing to put more money into this.
0: If only Lee had known. He had probably given them more credit than he should have, certainly. He should have put his foot down and made certain that this was the first one produced before going on to the Dracula, Yeah.
1: Right. Well, I mean, but you have to remember like, well, or not remember, but just think about like, what's going to be more important to hammer a new Dracula movie with Lee in it or this. Oh, sure. You know, it's like, but I I agree with you. I mean, the quality of this movie, there's this movie easily could have been one of their best films. Um, and I still think it kind of is in some way, like it still ranks up there because of the performance, but Unfortunately, I do think the budget cuts and the fact that they had to excise so many character moments in the second and third act, that acts that it it suffers a bit. It doesn't stand as strongly as some of their better films as a result.
0: No, and it doesn't stand as strongly that final act as you know, the first two. Like, it's, you know, interesting that you talked about Lee seeing the man as Saint and Sinner. I think the movie feels that way in its first half. It portrays him as being a complicated man. And then by the time you get to the final third of the movie, he's, he's just a straight up villain, you know, and yeah. there, there's no more like shades of gray. It's just pure black at that point. Um, you know, which is, you know, makes for, you know, it it's still solid entertainment, but it's a bit disappointing because up until that point, the movie was, you know, it seemed to have loftier goals, you know, uh, we've talked before on this podcast, like what would it be if you applied Hammer to any number of other types of movies? You know, what would a Hammer slasher movie look like? What would a Hammer musical be? What would Hammer this? What would Hammer that? You know, this is kind of like, you know, Hammer's historical biopic, you know, I, yeah. I, which I think yeah. is kind of fascinating. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's an outlier. It's kind of one-off in that regard. And I wish they kind of nailed it more than they do. But I will say what is here, ultimately what's left uh, even for all of its flaws and where it was kind of hamstrung, I think is still pretty damn fantastic.
1: Oh, I 100% agree, and it and it's one that even though I think is incredibly flawed, if somebody said, "Hey, pick like 10 Hammer movies to show someone," I think I would put this movie on the list because I really think it shows Christopher Lee's like capabilities as an actor more than any. Dracula movie does absolutely. Um, I mean, and and certainly, and I also think it benefits, uh, from Don Sharp, um, especially like so. You have Anthony Hines writing the screenplay, and like they, uh, another thing I was reading about was like some of the differences from the screenplay to the film. So, like, the film, the scene we're watching, right? And we talked about, like, you said, the uh, like the good and the bad of this character, um. And early in the scene, he's sort of making out with uh, the the girl, and and she's into it. Now it's becoming a bit rapey, right? Like in yeah. terms of what we're seeing right here. Well, in the script, it was always rapey. Um, she was always resisting him, and then the boyfriend comes in. Uh, Don Sharp made the conscious choice, along with uh, Christopher Lee, to have the the opening of the scene be that she was sort of into it attracted to Lee, like Lee has this magnetism, even though he's very animalistic and overgrown hair and he's, he's gruff. He still has this sort of sexual magnetism that's undeniable with his physical presence. And, and that also leads into the fact that he isn't, it's complicated. He's not just going in there and, you know, raping women that women are sort of attracted and drawn to him Uh, And I think it makes for like a much more interesting scene than if it had just been he's trying to take advantage of this girl. The guy comes in, he cuts the guy's hand off, you know, versus that was something that was instigated by jealousy and not by something that uh, Rasputin had done wrong initially, even though where he ends up going is is. Problematic, right? You know, so I think that's kind of an interesting take. And I think throughout the film, that's apparent that Sharp was trying to make him a more complicated character than what the screenplay might have posited. No, I agree. And it
0: makes it, you know, it, it's not great, obviously. It's kind of horrible that he lopped off the guy's hand and, you know, he was still going to force himself on her. But Oh, yeah. That, you know, what we saw up until that point, you know, when he first comes on screen, he is kind of terrifying in his own way. And then he's presented as a bit of a savior. And then it looks like he is, uh, you know, just a, a fun loving, you know, type, you know, the, the dancer, the, the, the big belly laugh, like all of that. You know, and then we're presented with, like you said, the more animalistic side of him. He's complicated in such a way that it makes it fascinating to sort of take this ride with him and to follow this character in a way, you know, I, I I think it's much easier to do that and to let him still be, you know, in a way kind of the protagonist of this movie by having him be complicated in that way, as opposed to simply
1: being just a bastard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we we should point out, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we also just ran through uh, several sets from Dracula, Prince of Darkness. The uh, the hut set he was in was from that. And now the monastery set is also the same uh, as from when he was climbing over the wall. All that stuff was the identical sets from Dracula, Prince of Darkness.
0: You know, it's funny. They, they spend a little bit of time here sort of giving us some clues into uh, Rasputin's backstory, you know, and... Uh... There, there's. It, it's all kind of reduced down to: Is he a man of God, or you know, these powers you know that he wields is are they of the devil, as it were? But you know, looking at the actual you know the the real Respawn's backstory, he he's kind of fascinating where he came from. You know, he was mixed up with a cult at one point. He mm-hmm. uh, he had a wife, but he partook in these kind of crazy orgies and whatnot. Like it's the man lived kind of an insane life before. You know, even entering into the events that are kind of dramatized in this movie, I, I would definitely recommend if you know, folks out there listening, if you watch this movie and enjoy it, try and dig into the River Rasputin and uh, uh, do a little bit of reading and kind of uh, see what you can find. I mean, there are even some interesting YouTube videos uh, about the man, and he's he's such a fascinating fucking character that uh, you know, yeah, you can make a 90 minute movie, uh, you know, much as Hammer did and still be. you you get a good sense of who he was and uh obviously what the most interesting parts of the story were but in, in 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 a way you could almost make seasons and seasons of television based on this man as well um and it's funny like obviously he commands uh you know the fascination of many storytellers I think you know uh it still kind of blows me away that a version of Rasputin is essentially a major villain in uh Guillermo del Toro's first Hellboy movie you know
1: and yeah, in, that's true, and in a believable way. <clears throat> and and don't forget about you know the animated Anastasia from the '90s. Yeah. I mean, Rasputin played by one Christopher Lloyd, or I should say voiced, uh, with his talking bat friend. I mean, this movie could have used a talking bat. That would have been good synergy with uh, the Dracula franchise. I I, I would have watched. It. I would have watched that stuff. I would have been okay uh, with that. But I digress. Yeah, I mean, at this point, there'd already been a bunch of movies tackling the uh, Rasputin character, which is why uh, part of why this uh, movie had the disclaimer on it. Uh, Did you read about the? They had to put, uh, like, uh, oh gosh, I had it copy and pasted. Oh, here it is. Okay. So they had to put this uh, quote, this is an entertainment, not a documentary. No attempt has been made at historical accuracy. All the characters and incidents may be regarded as fictitious. Uh, that had to be put in front of every print because of... But that's a big... not
0: necessarily true,
1: though, is it? Well, but that was something that started happening after... So I guess... I, I didn't know this until I started reading up on it, but in 1933, uh, MGM was sued by a princess, <laughs> one of the Romanovs, uh, who claimed that their movie... Uh, gosh, I I can't remember the title, but one they had made a movie similar to this one that had libeled their family, um, because in the movie, instead of being, uh, like the wife of the ruler, she was like the fiance and she was like essentially raped in the film. Uh, and of course, you know, that wasn't true to life and they they sued MGM, and they won, and they were awarded a million dollars. And this was 1933. (laughs) A million dollars was, you know, insane amounts. I mean, I don't think they actually got the money until several years later, but, like, that's enough to really put the studio in a, a, a very bad place. So people were very afraid after that. And supposedly... You know that disclaimer that's at the end of a lot of movies that says, like, everything in this film, you know, is fictitious, no, any bearings or likenesses to other characters or or whatever, you know, that thing that you see in a lot of movies? Apparently, that's where that came from, was that lawsuit. Wow. Yeah, and so Hammer like wanted to head that off at the pass uh, and they plastered that before the movie <laughs> even began. Whereas most movies like put it at the end of the credits. And I thought that was kind of a funny little thing, but so um, I'm looking it
0: up, man. There are like 10 films based upon the man going all the way back to, yeah. So there was Rasputin, the 1928 film. There was Rasputin, the Holy Sinner, or also known as Rasputin, the Holy, ugh, the Holy devil. Uh, there's Rasputin, which was a 1990, eh, sorry, 1929, uh, obscure German film directed by Max Neufeld, who also, I want to see that a
1: 1929, obscure German Rasputin movie. That would be awesome. (laughs) Now
0: we jump a decade. So that was Rasputin in 28 Rasputin, the Holy center in 28 Rasputin in 29. Then there was Rasputin in 1938, which was a French film. (laughs) There was a 1954 French-Italian film uh, called Rasputin. There was, of course, this one, the 66 uh, film The Mad Monk. There was a movie in 81 called Agony, which was a Soviet film. Uh, mm. There was a 1996 HBO film called Rasputin, Dark Servant of Destiny, starring Alan really? Rickman and Greta Scacchi. Alan Rickman. Played holy Rasputin.
1: shit. Okay.
0: Like, I need to see that. Dude, um, that's, <laughs> we got to watch that. <laughs> there was uh, a 2010 film called Rasputin, which was an Italian film. And then finally, there was a...
1: Uh, holy shit. Okay, Paul, I'm reading. Oh, now, we the- missed the stock shot, I was going to point out no yeah we were talking sorry it's uh you know the big ballroom dancing scene before this like yes that that is a stock shot from the movie anastasia in 19 fox's anastasia in 1956 Um, and no they were gonna this movie was supposed to have a huge sweeping ballroom dancing sequence but that was cut due to budgetary constraints so they had to take a shot from a different movie, and that's why that shot is very poor quality on this print, because it was it was basically copied and pasted into this print. Wow. Anyway, sorry to throw you off no, your... Uh... No, no, no. <laughs> I just wanted to point ridiculous. out you talked about it earlier. No, that just bums <laughs> me out again that they...
0: You know, again, I think they had a really great movie here, and I think it still is a great movie, but it does it is it
1: what you, you know, know, to think what might have been if what they pissed me gone. off is most of what was cut is Barbara Shelley stuff. So like there was a lot more Barbara Shelley stuff later in the film that fleshed her character out and like sort of explained kind of what happened to her and where she was. Um they even shot her suicide. I mean, I'm jumping ahead. Sorry, spoilers. Really? For watching. That was shot. Yeah, but they didn't include any of it. And like Sharp I I, I guess I'm jumping ahead commentary-wise, but like Don Sharp did not have a good time on this movie. He had a great time making uh, the other Hammer films he'd made before this. So Kiss of the uh, Vampire, Well, and, yeah, Kiss uh... of the Vampire and uh what like a pirate thing, I think, uh that he had worked with Lee. Uh, on, um, but this movie was a very like poor experience for him. Uh, Devil Ship Pirates uh, was the other one he made, um, and he basically left the film while it was being edited. So some of the stuff that was actually shot was excised, partially because they didn't think it made sense, because they didn't shoot more of the Barbara Shelley scripted content. And they just wanted to kind of because if you know, she kind of unceremoniously leaves the film, yeah. right? Like she's she's fairly important for the scene she's in before she's kind of taken under his spell. Um, like all of this stuff, Barbara Shelley is very heavily featured and she does a great job as always. But once she becomes sort of under his spell, she's kind of ushered off to the side until she's eventually like killed off. And we really don't get a great denouement. Um, or exploration of who she is and what her true desires really were. Um, And a lot of that was budgetary constraints. They just decided that that was, you know, the stuff that didn't need to be in the film.
0: You know, and that's awful, and I think it likely would have been more interesting if we got more from her, but I will say I kind of appreciated the fact that the movie kind of does away with her, again, as you said, unceremoniously, much in the way that, you know, the film's lead character does once he no longer has any interest in her. Neither does the movie that sort of bears his name. You know what I mean? I kind of appreciated that yeah, in a weird but it way. Would have been,
1: it would have been nice to see the cost of that, like the effect on her, like emotionally, which we, we get her sort of freaking out, but we don't, I don't know that we get enough of that. And, and the other component is, and I like the decision. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, I, I get what you're saying, but at the same
0: time, like, you know, and we've talked about this before with other characters, we could go back to our Curse of the Mummy's Tomb talk in a way, but, you know, she's no kitty from the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. Once she sort of strays just because she finds him mildly interesting, you know, and then it kind of goes that route. Like, I don't have sort of any sympathy for her. I don't have any connection to that character, and therefore, like, and especially given that yeah, admittedly, like, for that part of it, she's under his spell when she hurts the child. But, you know, I can't really become invested in her as a character that much. Sure. And as a result, I don't really care what her ultimate fate is. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I mean, and 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 certainly she's she's drawn to him because... He's different than her world. She's very clearly unhappy in her world, you know, and, and I is will she- say, oh. well, maybe unhappy is the wrong word. She's unexcited. She wants she wants to rough it a bit. She wants to be that rich person who sort of takes a vacation in the way of. Going to a a dirty, scummy apartment and getting with a commoner like that's exciting to her. I don't know that she wants that to be her entire life, but I think that's what she's seeking. I think she's looking for a fling, right, with somebody that is the opposite of the clean, prim and proper world she's in. And I think Barbara Shelley brings that to the character, because in the script, apparently it was a lot more Rasputin kind of controlling her and getting her under his spell and certainly even here they suggest that he's staring her into when he demands an apology you could argue at that point he's he's starting to put her under his spell so you could make an argument that it actually isn't that she's a shitty person it's just she's immediately hypnotized by him and do you think the movie bears that out though i don't because of the cuts I think had the full I so the script really did intend that to be the primary thing was that she's I mean the way from what I understand I haven't obviously read the original script that's not available anywhere uh, but Anthony Hines's script really did insinuate that she was drawn to him but ultimately most of everything that happens was because she was under a spell like it, the intention was she goes to him to apologize later because he, she was hypnotized to do so. You know, he commands her to do it while staring her into his eyes, which is well-established in the movie that that means he's hypnotizing her. Um, and But there are some subtle shifts that Don Sharp made to make it more confusing and morally ambiguous, which is very, you know, something he loves to do. Look at Kiss of the Vampire. It's a very morally ambiguous film. And, uh, like, for example, there... Uh, In in the script, uh, he was supposed to like Rasputin was dancing and the laughter causes him to be startled and he trips and he falls and he kind of like hurts himself. And that's why he's so offended. And Sharp was like, oh, no, this guy wouldn't fall. This guy just wouldn't like that. She's laughing. He's like, I don't want you to trip. I don't want you to be a buffoon. I just want you to be a like she's laughing at you. That pisses you off but you also see that she's upper class and that's a path for you because you're always looking for your next sort of like step up. And so I think Sharp really took what was probably a fine. I mean, I I love Anthony Heinz's scripts, but I think he made it more interesting. And And again, that moral ambiguity and that question of, is this something that the character like Barbara Shelley, is doing of her own accord? Like, cause she's kind of drawn to that and she wants something that she perceives as being more exciting than her life. Or is she just under a spell? We don't ever really know. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's a definitive answer to that question.
0: Do you think, and I agree with you and there's almost certainly no definitive answer to the question I'm going to ask when I'm going to ask your opinion on this. Do you think, that there is anything supernatural going on here with Rasputin.
1: Well, well, I mean he has powers. Doesn't <laughs> That's supernatural. Well, yeah, he heals people. I mean, he heals. But does he So you're saying it's just I mean, well, mm, okay. I mean, the other side of that argument would be it's just sort of like I think he just he very... comes at the right time. Like cuz no, how else no, do no. you explain that he removes the woman's fever? At the beginning of the movie, or the little boy's sort of coma that he's in. I don't know that he does remove
0: her fever. I, you know, we don't spend that much time. Like, he walks in and he presses his hands to her face and, you know, throttles her. What would have happened if she didn't wake up? Oh, well, she's beyond saving, right? But her fever breaks or she wakes up probably because she's being throttled by a man who's, you know, holding on to her face for dear life. And then he holds his hands out, like, feel them, you know, and somebody does, oh, they're burning up. It's like, well, they were pressed to a a feverish woman's face for God knows how long, you know? Sure. And then I, I think, to me, there's a reading of this movie where that man, which is almost certainly what happened in real life, was, you know, likely a skilled hypnotist, but more than anything, just a damned good con man.
1: I no, I mean, look in real life. Do I think that there was a guy who could like heal people? No, I, I don't. I, but I'm also a pretty. Um, for as much as I love uh, this stuff in movies, in real life, I am very much like uh, I don't believe in a lot of stuff that I isn't. You know, uh, I, I, I don't believe that that's a thing. But in the film, in this movie, uh, I do believe the character is intended. Like it's intended for you to think that he does have powers. Um, why he has them, who knows? I mean, I do like the idea that it's like: is it God, or is it the devil, or is it man just not being able? Like, or or does man determine where those powers are sourced from? You know, like do, do your actions and deci- decisions ultimately decide is this the work of God or the work of the devil? It could have been either maybe they're one and the same, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting sort of philosophical question. Um, but I do think there's pretty definitive things that happen in the context of the film that suggests that he won could absolutely hypnotize people, which in and of itself, in my opinion is somewhat supernatural. I mean, I know that hypnotism is sort of a thing, like you can go into trances and things like that, but to go so far as to make somebody snap back into who they are, go back to their home and then be with a child, snap back into the hypnotized state, push the child off a ledge and then go back to who they were. That's supernatural. That's not, that's not a, a hypnotism thing. Like, Oh, you're going to not smoke anymore. Cause you don't like the taste of cigarettes. Like that's not the same thing as what's happening in this film. Uh, and you know, his the amount of times he's shown healing people to me suggests the movie wants you to think that this guy does have some sort of supernatural ability. Okay, that's fair. I, but, you know, I,
0: even at that, I can buy into that, but I don't know that time somebody is drawn to him is purely because of his supernatural powers, you know? I, I, not, I think initially, a, yeah.
1: To, I, like,
0: I don't believe when he goes to the window and stares out into the distance that he's telepathically communicating with her to draw her to him. Like, I, I think you nailed it when you said she's somebody who's interested in just, you know, uh, uh, finding a commoner to sort of take a roll in the hay with, as it were. Yeah. I That's agree. the reason she's there, you know? Um, not because he you know, he he, he drew her to him uh
1: well, supernaturally.
0: So I yeah, yeah. By the way, I should note, and I don't need to fully upset the uh uh the talk we're having, but I am seeing notifications that Yafik Kodo passed away. Oh no. That sucks. So, great character actor. Uh, as Scott Foy, who is uh, known for this show, uh, noted, he was a truly versatile actor of too many great films and TV shows to list. And the only one who can say that he fought James Bond, <laughs> the xenomorph from Alien, Freddy Krueger, and Buzzsaw Eddie Batowski from uh, Oh uh, The Running Man. So, <laughs> hell of a career the man had, and it's a damn shame that he passed away.
1: Yeah, that really is. Wow. Well, at least uh, you know, he'll be remembered in his amazing work.
0: <laughs> That's a fact.
1: Ah, now I'm sad. Damn it. No, it's okay. I mean, we can we we can soldier on, I think, hopefully. But Yeah, I know I, I uh not to be like <laughs> shitty and try to move on from that <laughs> like fine paul try and uh, bring it back I, to the conversation we were I, having
0: I, in the first place Jeez. i
1: apologize i apologize but barbara shelley this
0: is maybe okay. the racist thing i've seen in a hammer film up until this point paul would you say
1: yes this um yeah this is pretty overt uh in terms of like undressing, yeah, like that. That's pretty crazy. Her bare back. I don't think I've seen so much flesh on display in a Hammer nope.
0: film up until this point.
1: No, I can't think of much. Um and certainly this the way the scene ends with him ripping the blanket off and throwing it at the camera. And again that that animal sexuality he brings to it. What's interesting to me is that he even though he looks like the kind of guy that would never sort of get a girl because he's so rough around the edges you believe he could because he just has that electricity to him you know um and that power he's just sort of raw undiluted power which again is why i buy into him having abilities because i think that's a part of what gives him that power um and 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 again i'm not trying to when I say she's, like, hypnotized or whatever, I'm not trying to give Sonya, the character of Sonya, sort of, like, a a, a way out of the shitty thing she does. I think she is definitely not a good character. She, she sacrifices a lot of things for her own desires and lusts. Um, but the movie does make it incredibly clear that all that man needs to do is look intensely into someone's eyes to get them to do what he wants. That's that's a plot point, basically. But, there, um, but there's also a bit of a process
0: when he does that, too, that doesn't take place with her. Well, uh, I, until he does, you know, he sort of gives her instructions on how to handle Alexi. Like, I just don't if, if I, we buy I, into I, the premise that he needs to fully hypnotize them and sort of giving give them their. uh you know, instructions as it were, you know, it, it seems like it's much more of a process when he does that, when he has her do what she does to Alexi, when he, you know, hypnotizes the uh, Zarina, uh, as it were, you know, there's the snap of the fingers to snap them out of it. Right. Like that never happens when he just confronts her on the dance floor. And then eventually she comes to him. Like, I have to believe that well, that was
1: her own will. He, he does say, you will come to me and apologize. And that's what she does. You know, yeah. I mean, that—that that is direction. And the other piece is, I think it has to do with the malleability of the mind. Like, she has a more malleable mind in relation to she already kind of wants to go to him. So it's easier for him to get her to do things that it might be for other people. Um, and I think some of this stuff, like, and again, I do think that she's not supposed to be viewed as a great character. She... She puts a lot of people in danger and, and everything else, but I, I do think she also is caught under his spell much quicker than a lot of other people because of those desires um, and is more willing to go along with things, which I, I think what interests me is I think by the end, the idea would have been she just would have done what he wanted because she was so intoxicated by his power. Um, and she wouldn't have had to be hypnotized. Um, and I think that would have been maybe an interesting place to get to with that character. Not necessarily because I cared about her so much, but because, like, that just makes for a int- more interesting narrative than, you know, because it's weird to me that she's such a big part of the movie and then she just disappears. That That's but-
0: odd to me. I agree with that. Can I just say that Zargo here is maybe the most ineffectual, like, wingman ever? You know, to... to it, like Not even... Okay, not in the sense of being a wingman, but he's... How many times in this movie is he standing off to the side and he, he sees Rasputin doing or commanding something terrible, and he
1: always has that moment where he's like, he didn't... Did, did, yeah, well, about, Zargo did, is a weird character. Um, and I don't quite know, like why like that's a guy like why the fuck is he doing anything for Rasputin like what what I never really understood I mean I get that like the first time they encounter one another he drinks him under the table but like why then is he his lackey after that you know I that's something that I was a little curious about that I don't know that the movie totally earns
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, at at first you might think, well, maybe they were drinking pals, but no, that's not really borne out at all. There's not a moment where those two guys, where Zargo ever seems to be or want to be Rasputin's friend. So then is it, you know, is he in debt to him because he didn't have the 50 Kopecks to pay because he was, you know, his ass was drunk under the table? Well, no, I don't know that that's necessarily the case either. Was he hypnotized? Well, we don't really see that either. And if he was, he wouldn't be making so many objections. So, yeah, what the hell is it between those two guys? I mean, Zargo seems like – to me, the only thing that makes sense to me is that he's such a weak-willed character that he doesn't even need to be hypnotized to fall under the sway of like a more powerful figure like Rasputin. Rasputin – yeah says so zargo does and that's pretty much it
1: well yeah and like later in the film they establish that zargo has been sort of like kicked out of the medical community um lost his license you know and uh has nowhere to turn and he was he himself was being controlled by a different guy who was like oh who will you know take on zargo in a drinking contest like he was being used by someone else to make money um, and just gets sloshed and embarrass himself. So this maybe offers him a bit of, not dignity, but something better than that.
0: <laughs> By the um, way, how badly did you want the little boy to fall onto the ice? And as somebody rescues him, they find Dracula's body underneath <laughs> that frozen river. Because that is totally, <laughs> oh, it totally is the, place, the exact yeah. same location as the end of Prince of Darkness. Yep.
1: Yep, and later on, uh, that, well, spoilers, that's the same place where Christopher Lee once again meets his doom at the hands of the same guy, Francis Matthews. <laughs> I want a crossover movie. I want Rasputin, Prince of Darkness, you know? Yeah. Or well, And, like, that that's home. another thing about this film that I don't really get is, like, so it's really lopsided with its characters. Like, so, for example, like, Barbara Shelley is this huge character right now, Francis Matthews has been introduced in the film, but he's not really in it. And then once Barbara Shelley disappears, Francis Matthews sort of emerges as like this weird protagonist, this weird sort of like third act protagonist where suddenly he's in every scene and he's the one sort of putting everything together. And I'm like, this guy should have been in the whole movie. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's bizarre. It, it, I don't know. I, and again, you, to me, it it's where you feel the budget cuts. It's where you feel like, They cut out every scene that they didn't absolutely need. Um, And so you're really just seeing like the core narrative around Rasputin. You see all the Rasputin stuff. You don't see anything that doesn't have him unless it directly relates to how the film's going to resolve itself. Um, And I think it makes the final act feel slighter than it probably should.
0: Yeah, I get it. I wonder how much, you know, I haven't done that much research into it. I wonder how much of it was any sort of fidelity to real events and feeling like they needed to touch on certain characters as opposed to simply, you know, making composites and sort of, you know, more finely focusing on, you know, just a certain set of characters to tell maybe a more entertaining, more focused story you know, as opposed to, well, we need to have this person, we need to have this person, and so on and so forth. I don't know that that's the case, that's pure conjecture, but I just, I I wonder if that might have been something that they run, you know, ran up against. I agree with you that, you know, had they had more money, then maybe that wouldn't have mattered. I do wonder if, you know, since this was sold on a double bill, I wonder if there was any sort of time constraint, you know, where maybe they couldn't have had, I wonder what this movie would look like as a two hour feature, you know, if it were allowed to breathe a little bit more, you know, but instead we're, we're at 90 minutes and it moves kind of like a bat out of hell. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they were forced to keep it at 90 minutes as a result. I don't know, but
1: yeah, it's, well, and and that is an interesting point. It is one of the few Hammer movies where I watch it and I go, "Man, I wish this were longer." Yeah, <laughs> you know. Whereas, like one of the things I love about Hammer films is they don't overstay their welcome. They they get in, they get out. It's it's over. You're you're at ninety minutes. You're good. Um, and this does follow suit with that. We're not talking like this is a seventy minute movie. It, it's a there's There's a lot that happens in it, but but at the same time, because of its biopic nature, it feels like it could stand to have a good 15 more minutes of content um, to really make it feel more meaty at the end um, and fulfilling versus kind of what we actually get. Um, But, you know, I, I think Don Sharp was a little frustrated with it as well which is why during the editing process, he basically walked away from the film. Really? Yeah. I mean, he left before the film was being done edited, Um, which is not a great sign. <laughs> and he was pretty vocal about his discontent with the way the production was handled. I, I mean, he didn't like how rushed it was. He was pissed off about the, uh, the budget cuts Um, And then there were some preemptive edits uh, regarding what the censors were going to allow. Um, Part of that, that included the suicide scene. Uh, And he didn't like that that was going to be cut because I guess that that and it's weird to me that some of this stuff like hasn't surfaced. But at the same time, I imagine at this point, especially with how hammer was, I doubt any of those, like anything that they would have had that was cut probably doesn't exist anymore. I'm sure none of it was kept. Um, but man, wouldn't it be cool to see like a restored version with like the stuff that was cut? Uh, you yeah. know, that would be, man, I, I wish, I wish you could go back in time and just tell, Hey, keep all the scenes you're cutting somewhere safe. <laughs> Cause someday we'll be able to scan that shit and, uh, restore your movie.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you do wonder if it exists anywhere or but then again, this was what, I nearly mean, if it did, this was like fifty some years ago. I mean, hell, yeah. you were just talking about Event Horizon. They can't even find the footage to that. I mean, that's that's the only thing, like twenty five like, years if ago. If
1: this stuff existed, somebody would it would show up. You know, it would turn up somewhere. Um or or if it exists outside of someone's closet, you know, is it in a canister somewhere Amongst a pile of canisters, a la the arc at the end of you know, Raiders (laughs) of the Lost Ark. Sure, maybe. Yeah, it's right alongside the Riders of the
0: Wickerman and the Magnus.
1: (laughs) It might as well not exist. (laughs) But damn shame too it is yeah but you know and and not to get all negative i i i really think like we were talking about it earlier and even just the scene where any time lee is just on the screen silently doing his thing um it's just captivating i mean he can command the frame for minutes at a time without saying a word And not yet me. this is
0: probably one of his most talky roles.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well for hammer, for sure. I mean, I haven't seen, and, and this is a weird digression, but it's a Don Sharp movie. Have you seen the face of Fu Manchu? I have not. I have not seen any of Lee's Fu Manchu films.
0: Uh, I'm sad I... to say.
1: Okay. So I haven't either. And I'm, I'm super curious, but I'm also like, they seem a little bit offensive. <laughs> And, I mean, I know for the times that they were made and whatever, you can kind of excuse it, I suppose. But there is an indicator box set of those movies. Um, Really? Yes, like a really nice, uh, fancy indicator box set. And they do very, very good box sets that I've been, like, on the fence about buying. And and it's coming down to the wire because those things don't last long before going out of print. And I'm, like, super close to uh, pulling the trigger. And now that that we're talking about it, I'm like, man, maybe I should. I
0: do own that – oh, Anchor Bay. I want to say it was Anchor Bay. They put it out ages ago, but it was a four-disc box set. It was DVDs of two of his Fu Manchu movies and The Bloody Judge and something else. I own the box set. I have not seen the Fu Manchus, though. What is that damn Severin box set that's coming up? It's like ridiculously expensive, but oh, the oh, that's right just now.
1: European films. The Eurocrypt of
0: Christopher Lee collection, yeah, nine-disc yeah. Blu-ray slash CD box set, hundred and five dollars. Street date of May. Paul, let's look and see what's in here. They have Castle of the Living Dead. Challenge the debt. Oh no, that's not all of them. Fucking hell! Excuse me for just a moment. Okay, Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Challenge the Devil, Sherlock Holmes, and the Deadly Necklace. Really? Directed by Terrence Fisher with Lee yeah, as Yeah, the Deadly
1: Necklace, which is Sherlock. why he couldn't film, uh, oh, what was it, um, the, uh, well, that might have been Kiss of the Vampire. Love it. That's when they brought in Don Sharp, right? Like, that's because they were going to bring, it was supposed to be Dracula 3, and they they altered it and brought in a different director because it was after a series of box office flops well that wasn't the only reason but he was off doing Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace yeah sorry Didn't mean no that. you're good
0: uh Christopher Lee presents Theater Macabre the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism uh that's shit I guess I'm gonna need to buy that
1: so uh, I pre-ordered that box set like a month ago
0: uh
1: <laughs> of course you did Paul of course I, you did. I assumed. I just assumed you did I no just I haven't
0: like, gotten around oh, to God. it yet I didn't know that the pre-order was available and then I was oh, just yeah, I, I futzing around shit. on Severin and I was like oh wait a second now I see that they have for $63 more you can get Christopher Lee's European Vacation Bundle which okay. includes that big ass box set a tribute poster, a Hall of Fame enamel pin and the book Terrence Very Fisher true. Master of Gothic Cinema
1: Dalton yeah I uh I all I debated I debated about that but I ultimately just went with the box set because I was like well if I really want the book I can get the book the pin I'm not a big pin guy yeah I've got a closet full of posters that aren't hung up (laughs) (laughs) and I was like I really want the movies um but hey man I would not I would I wouldn't blame you for getting the uh The only thing I would want is the book, but I'm wondering if I can just buy the book
0: separately, then buy the box set. And then, you know, boom, I'm good. And I see that the damn Andy Milligan, uh, super duper set with the reprint of the ghastly one is, uh, sold out.
1: So that's a, uh, that's a pisser. Um, yeah, I, I didn't get that. And I didn't get the, um, uh, what's the the really the 30 film box set that they did? Oh, um, but, uh, yeah, the, 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 uh fucking hell. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That yeah, guy. I I didn't buy that. And part of the reason, well, one, it was like three hundred dollars. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I here's <laughs> here's what, what would have happened. I'll be honest. I would have bought it and would have fucking went on my shelf and I wouldn't have opened it for years (laughs) and I'm like, do I need to spend $300 on something? I'm just not going to watch. I mean, I'll watch those movies eventually, but like, you know, I bought it's similar to the Herschel Gordon Lewis set that I bought from arrow. I have it. I'm happy. I have it. I don't know when the hell I'm going to get to it, you know, like eventually, but not anytime soon. Um, and if, if I have to pay over a hundred dollars or a couple hundred dollars to to to, for something I'm not going to get to anytime soon. I just can't justify it these days because I'm spending so much money on movies, but, but a Christopher Lee set, like, I'll get to that pretty quick.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. I, uh, I don't know, like these filmmakers, I love the idea that they're going back and they're finding these regional filmmakers and they're shining a light on their work where you can really dive in and be like, instead of trying to piecemeal it, which would probably never work, you know, ever, you know, at least this way you have something that kind of definitively, you know, it takes an overview, like a look at their career where you can dive in and be like, okay, I know what this guy was about. I know what his films were. Like, I like that. I like that there is a uh, a William Graffet box set. I love that there's an H.G. Lewis box set. I love that there's uh you know, I guess I don't know a damn thing about Andy Milligan, but I love that there's a box set of all
1: of his work coming out. I yeah, don't know yeah, me if too. I'm going to buy it, but. And I might, I might eventually. Like, And and if I, and the weird thing is, if I saw it in a store somehow, I'd probably be really inclined to just buy it. Um, I just sent you a link to the Fu Manchu set, and... Just got it. <laughs> I want to let you know uh, that it is out of print on most every secondary website, but you can still get it through so your indicator.
0: Okay, so you're really twisting my arm on that one, then. And uh. it's
1: the only place it's still available, and it will be going out of print soon because it's limited edition, and it's every Fu Manchu movie in a big old fancy box set.
0: I just wonder, like... Is there going to be a U.S. equivalent to this release? Oh, guaranteed.
1: <laughs> then I'm gonna. I'll probably hold off
0: for that because um, I still I've not made
1: the leap to uh, region free yet. Paul, so you're fine. I'm, i might end up ordering that, but um, anyway. Sorry, listeners. You have to listen to us uh, talk about Blu-rays we're going to buy. This is the part of the show where we'll hey, devi-
0: Paul. Sorry, hell. You're welcome, listeners.
1: You're we're welcome. Helping. We're helping them buy movies. But yeah, I'm, yes. I'm really excited about that European uh, box set for Lee. I think, um, well, it's funny too, because Lee was so big in Europe. He was much bigger in Euro- Europe than he was in the US and even in the UK. And that's, that's why, you know, you talk about why he wasn't put front and center more often. He, it was because he wasn't as big of a star. Cushing was the star. You know, Cushing was in the weekly movie. Like he was in the live. I've been. Did you know in the in the 50s, like every Sunday, the BBC would put on like a live movie, basically, like that they would record live in the studio and air that way. No, but I love that. And Cushing starred in like most of them. So like every fucking week, Peter Cushing was like doing basically live theater. It was being broadcast to all of Britain and was like the highest rated thing. So Peter Cushing was like a household name because of that. So when he made the move into movies, that was part of the reason the movies were so big that he was in and why he was such a big draw. Now that wasn't the case over in the U S but it, you know, slowly grew from there by the mid sixties, Lee had made a name for himself and he was huge in Europe. Um, And obviously Dracula was a big movie, but like he wasn't, as associated with hammer vampires as we think he is because at that point there had only been one movie with him in it. There had been multiple vampire films that hammer had made that had been really, really successful, but they were without Lee. So like this was sort of hammer trying to make Lee a bigger star, you know, Prince of darkness and Rasputin was sort of a, a a chance to kind of put Lee front and center and have people sort of see him for the star that he was. So, in that case, was Prince of Darkness, was that at all a gamble for
0: Hammer? Because I know with the later Dracula movies, certainly Lee was always kind of, uh, you know, very honest about the fact that they would sell the movies on his name to other territories, and then... Yes. You know, call him up and beg him to actually agree to do the movie because they had already pre sold the damn thing. So obviously they needed him at that point. If they were trying to make him a big star over the course of the making of this four film cycle, you know, making them all back to back to back. And he starred in two of them. Was Dracula at all a bit of a gamble or were they already kind of counting on the fact that it was likely to be a hit simply because it was Lee playing that character again, do you think?
1: Well, I would go so far as to say Dracula wasn't a gamble because vampire films had proved so successful for the studio. I think regardless of who had been in it, that movie was going to make money. Um, I mean, Kiss of the Vampire had none of those original stars, but it did incredibly well. And, you know, the thing that surprises me about Prince of Darkness is that they didn't get. I don't the thing I can't understand is why Cushing's not in it. Because Cushing was their star, and he would have done it. Um, And he was a huge reason why Brides was so successful. I I just don't understand why he wasn't in that film. The one thing I've read and the one theory, because a lot of Hammer historians aren't even entirely sure. Um, And the one thing that people keep seem to be coming back to is that was Hammer's attempt to sort of use the... Uh, uh, power of the Dracula franchise to make Lee a bigger star than he was, because if Lee was the only big name in that movie, uh, from sort of the origins of the franchise, then they could, they could sort of attribute the whole film to him um, put him on the poster, he wouldn't have to share a, you know sort of the titles with Le- with Cushing um, and that would sort of push his star power further and I think it did because Prince of Darkness was a big success. It was what people wanted, um, and then they kept bringing him back and then that became a selling point for those films because he was synonymous with the character.
0: I do love this moment where, again, you have Zargo kind of hanging out in the background, uh, not doing a damn thing. But I I, <laughs> I love the image here of Rasputin being as rough-hewn as ever and yet being in that crisp white robe. And, yeah. you know, he, he's been purified. He's been elevated by his, uh, you know, now his place in the court, as it were. You know, he is the Zarina's right-hand man, which is very much, you know by all accounts, what happened in real life, you know? Um, And of course he sort of, one of the things that I wish the movie had dug into was the idea that even as he was sort of ascending, um, you know, and and becoming the right-hand man and sort of wielding an influence in the government there. There was a sort of growing ire in, you know, uh, the commoners who recognized as much as anybody, you know, outside of that very, very tiny circle, the sort of toxic influence he was wielding, you know? So I wish that the movie had found a way to sort of show that point of view and show that building. Um, you know, ultimately I, I can't knock the movie for what it didn't do. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, it'd be better if, but just as a viewer, I kind of wish that that had been touched upon a little bit. By the way, what the hell is Zargo doing in that room back there? Why is he messing around with chemicals? He's, What's he doing? You know,
1: making potions, um, playing with acid, setting As up uh, plot devices for later in the film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, probably shouldn't leave this one around. Uh, but... Yeah,
1: classic hammer like sort of pseudo-laboratory scene. You know, where it's like, oh, we have all kinds of weird chemicals and things that might come into play later. You just need to see it really quickly now, so that way when we do it. In 20 minutes, it won't feel out of left field. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, I, Zargo's a character that I sort of, I struggle with a little bit. He's, he's probably the thing in the movie that I, I have the most, I don't know if I, I don't, not like issue with, it's not the right thing, but it's more just like, I feel like he's kind of a non-character. Like he feels like he's there just because hammer movies need the, the sort of villainous, the anti-hero to have a right hand man who does what they Another. need them to do. um, That will sort well, of yeah, like he's, either he's support eager. or torn, turn on them at the end. Right. Like, yeah, he's Igor, but it, but he's it Carl. feels less. The problem I think is in a movie like this, an Igor character feels less like intuitive to the narrative. Like it doesn't feel like it fits. Like, I mean, yeah, I believe that Rasputin would have a character like that, probably, but it doesn't make sense that, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, although in a lot of ways, Rasputin wouldn't really need him. I mean, because what does Zargo really do for Rasputin?
0: Well, I that I buy, even with, you know, would the movie be stronger if they actually found a way to work it into a bit of dialogue, or at least acknowledge it, certainly. But I do believe, you know men of power like that like to have somebody to grind underneath their heel or to look up up at them and tell them how wonderful they are or even to just have which certainly isn't what Zarga does but yeah. I feel I like just he needs Zargo somebody like, constantly under his thumb you know sure yeah and that's mean, totally what he yeah, is
1: i get that i mean and and that's but and that's all he is though like he, yes. he serves no purpose in the movie at all other well okay other than to turn on him and help francis matthews defeat him you know like that's really zargo's point in the film like that's his only story you know purpose and and this so like the barbara shelley kind of like freaking out and begging him to take her back so I had a question about this do Do you think her sort of manic obsession with him is like just how she feels, or do you think that 's a side effect of uh some of the hypnotism she's been put under Yes all right, <laughs> all right.
0: no I, I think it's I think it's both I think the movie. <laughs> Well, I, but, you know, I, I say that jokingly, but I also think it's kind of true, and if for no other reason than because the movie certainly doesn't give us a definitive answer, or even give us enough to really come to, a, you know, anything conclusive, um, you know, it sure feels like, a, at times, it feels like a woman scorned, and so what would that be? That would obviously be her own emotions, right, being severed, you know, being unceremoniously dumped by this bastard who has otherwise ruined her life, certainly, But then, on the other hand, she is so very manic and so very wild that, you know, there there has to be something more going on there, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, It's... (sighs) This scene does the movie
1: no favors, I don't think. Uh, Well, I think it undermines a lot of what was set up. Like, because the other thing is, like... The way she reacts is so out of character that it's hard to believe that this is just how she feels, you know, because she never for all of her wrongdoing and, you know, questionable decisions. She never acts like that. She never like, you know, completely loses herself emotionally. And sure, the movie could be building towards that and suggesting that she's unstable, but I I don't think it earns that moment. And so all I'm really left with is, well, I guess this is the side effect of fucking with someone's mind. You know, when you mess with someone's mind, the way he is, this is sort of what ends up happening is that they become obsessed with the person who's controlling them to the point where they themselves lose control over all of their faculties. And then that makes it almost feel like she's it, it absolves her a little bit for me. Like I think that's why when I go back to the beginning, I, I see it more as like, oh, well, maybe she's being manipulated, manipulated from the beginning because of how she reacts later. Um, but it also could be because so much of her character was cut out of this film.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I and you're right. Not only does he do that, but it also it, it it diminishes Rasputin at this point. Yeah, we we were talking about this at the very beginning, but by you know the time we get to the final third of the movie, the 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 character has been reduced to just a little more than just a straightforward villain. I think. Right. And, yeah.
1: He's he's because what is he doing? He's just in this big fancy house meeting with like other. Uh, wealthy women it kind of reminds me of um which frankenstein movie is it it's the second one right revenge where he's like he's sort of the town doctor and he's like meeting with these like wealthy women who's like trying to get him to marry their daughters and he's just so bored by all of it you know but he does it because he kind of has to keep up appearances um that's that's interesting and this Rasputin's kind of doing the same thing like as we see a bunch of women in his parlor at one point waiting to meet with him and he kicks them all out so he can meet with the with the queen or whatever position she is, the czar's wife or whatever um, but there's no nuance to why he's doing any of it he's just kind of doing it and you know drinking and just bumbling around and and there's no real goal like what is he attempting to accomplish yes exactly other than sleeping with uh, suzanne farmer or whatever like which also like his obsession with suzanne farmer is really weird because we she's barely in the movie uh and and she has nothing to do well, Paul, being fair, she is Suzanne Farmer. But, well, okay. All right. Yeah.
0: But yeah, no, you're right. I, <laughs> he is not. And in that way, he is not the character that he was in the opening scene on that coach with the man next to him talking about how he would get the money. You know, there is a a drive in that man. There's a look in his eyes where you can tell he is going to ascend those ranks and it's going to be all for some terrible or yeah, likely terrible, we'll say likely terrible purpose. And you're right. Once he kind of gets there, he's like, great, I'm here just gonna hang out now you know it's again it's another reduction of that character which is I think if the movie you know I can buy what happens to uh Barbara Shelley here or Sonia I can I can I can forgive the fact that he becomes a little more villainous in the final third okay fine but to me the most unforgivable sin in this movie is the fact that it does sort of sap him of any of his uh, uh, really intelligence. You know, it, it, the guy that we saw in the first two-thirds of the movie, is that a guy that we think would eventually just be uh, 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 rendered comfortable by a drink and women and attention, you know, and that he would no longer yeah. have any grander goals than that? You know, it's, it's unfortunate the the movie kind of took that route, and it's certainly not true of the man in real life, and I don't think it would have been that hard to you know, with a l- little bit of tweaking, a little bit of writing, you could restore that to the character in this final section of movie. I, I don't think that can be justified by a cut in budget. You know, I-, I think that has to be a flaw that was always there in the script. Um, yeah. And it's just it's, it's a shame. It-, it hobbles an otherwise, I think, damn good movie.
1: That's fair. Yeah, I would agree. And, and again, I, I hate. I I hate getting so negative because I really do like this movie. <laughs> like um, it's, it's one of those films that feels really important. Like we've watched a lot of hammer at this point. You know, I, I, I used to think I, I always call myself like a hammer novice. And now I, I don't think I can say that anymore. I think I've watched enough. I haven't seen it all, but I've seen enough to know kind of what hammers general, you know, output was. And I think this ranks, like this is worth mentioning alongside the great hammer movies, but it all boils down to Christopher Lee's performance. um, And, and I would say some of the directorial choices that Don Sharp made, I really think, and and that's no slight to everyone else that went into making this film. But I really do think those two worked really well together. Uh, and, and it makes me really excited to see. Have you ever seen the devil ship pirates? No, I haven't. Okay. So apparently that's the other hammer movie they made. Um, and it's obviously a pirate movie and not a horror movie, but man, am I excited to see a Don Sharp, Christopher Lee collaboration hammer film. That's a pirate movie. I feel like that's going to be good. (laughs) Well, it would kind of have to be, I don't know. Is that God? I have that hammer set. I wonder if it's on that. Ooh, good question. Might be. I, I am, I own, this is how bad it is. I own fucking movie Blu-ray sets that I don't know. What they include, (laughs) right there with you, chief. But like, I gotta think. I'm checking. I'll see if I can't do it. It doesn't look like it is. Um, So I'll have to research that. I will say, while we've been talking, I did order the Fu Manchu box set from uh, Indicator. So wow, Paul! Wow, that's another (laughs) damn. I I am I have a problem. I I'm an addict. I'm a <laughs> Blu-ray addict, and um, I need to go to like some sort of meeting.
0: Wait, Paul, help. what was the movie called again?
1: The pirate film? Uh, the Devil Ship Pirates. No, it is not on there. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I knew I wasn't that lucky. Uh, so I will uh, do some research and try to track that down. Uh, because that sounds really great. But yeah. Uh, no I think. Um, I really do like the lighting. In this sequence. So we're at the. Scene like there's the. the uh, Stained glass windows. With the light coming through. You know Sharp was a lot less experimental. Than. Um, even like Fisher was willing to go. Like, a, Like he didn't like to do. Light in films like diegetic light that didn't make sense. You know, there weren't any weird greens or reds or blues coming from nowhere. It it all had to have some sort of logical origin in the frame.
0: I agree. And I do love that, that, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I'm wondering at this point after having seen a few of the man's films, like, I wonder if Don Sharp isn't kind of like an unsung hero of Hammer. You know, he's not talked about as often as uh, your Freddie Francis's or your Terence Fisher's. But by God, the man had a style
1: all his own, and he 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 could make a damn good film. Well, I maintain that Kiss of the Vampire is one of the very best Hammer films. I mean, I love that movie. I think that's a great movie, um, and it de- it's deserving of more attention than I think it sometimes gets because it's sandwiched in between Brides and Prince of Darkness, you know? Um, and in retrospect, that franchise is sort of what everyone looks to when it comes to the Hammer vampire or the Karnstein trilogy. Um, and kiss kind of gets a little bit, well, I mean, it's getting more attention now, but it gets a little bit forgotten. And I think it was a really important film in Hammer's repertoire because it it really shifted uh uh from the sort of black and white good and evil uh you know battle for the soul type of mentality that terrence fisher had to a more morally ambiguous occult focus that the latter part of that the 60s held for hammer you know like sharp ushered that in and he came in without really a knowledge of horror (laughs) He like it's it's very well documented that like when he made that movie, he had he wasn't really a horror fan. He hadn't watched many horror movies and he had never seen any of Hammer's horror films. So they sat him down and showed him like (laughs) Curse of Frankenstein, uh, Horror of Dracula and a couple others. uh, And like that was what he sort of leveraged to create his own vision, which is really interesting that he then. You know, deviated so dramatically uh, uh, from what Fisher was doing, but um, yeah, no, I, I I think Sharp is a very important director in in the Hammer history of things. I agree, and now even after after
0: having talked about this, I I definitely want to track down that Devil Ship movie too, which looks like it's weird. Back in the day, there were these collections called Icons of. Um, mm. and they all pulled together these various hammer films. Uh, there was icons of horror, which had, uh, the two faces of Dr. Jekyll and the revenge of Frankenstein and so on and so forth. And then, uh, there was icons of adventure and then icons of something else. And that held the, uh, the four pirate films. Now, weirdly enough, the bulk of those movies made it onto that mill Creek set. But, uh, for whatever reason, devil ship did not
1: that's so fresh and you know what i'm looking at it now it's starring so christopher lee andrew keir and michael ripper i mean that's that's just holy that's just shit marvelous. dude like that movie's gonna be so good Which, <laughs> Paul, true or false
0: all three of those actors are a part of this film
1: is michael ripper in this movie i don't know is he <laughs>
0: uh good well, Paula, you got a 50 50 shot false false okay it is true it's true for whatever reason the gentleman the old man who was driving the coach at the very beginning that uh Rasputin is talking to yeah for whatever reason they dubbed that man's voice and the actor they got to dub that performance was michael ripper
1: oh son of a bitch that was a trick question <laughs> uh all right and uh the other thing about uh devil ship pirates is it was written by uh jimmy Sangster. oh nice you can't go wrong with Sangster. so i am very excited to watch that movie maybe maybe we need to it's not horror but maybe we need to uh sneak in a pirate commentary maybe uh, maybe uh, one if we find yeah. it, because it's now we're devil in the scary. title.
0: That's uh that's horror ship pirates possibly. sounds to me horror enough. You Oops. know, Paul, I, let me ask you something then, you know, the fact that we're splitting hairs or unsplitting hairs as it were to justify watching that movie <laughs> in our otherwise hammer horror focused podcast. Let me ask you something. Sure. Do you think Rasputin the mad monk is a horror film? Um, You're overthinking
1: it. Gut reaction. My gut reaction is yes. Okay. Given the time it was... Yes. I I think that was the intention. Because there's enough sequences in it that are shot and put together like a horror sequence. Like, we just had a scene in the darkness where people were sneaking around... Cut to key light on the eyes only as the eyes stare forward. Yeah, They're I mean, there's one thing, faces like there's it's, one it's,
0: sequence, like, but they okay, they Saint modded it. All right, Paul, like they <laughs> it's, it's
1: otherwise this it's, one it's, thing, but uh, then you know, there's tons of you know, situations with Rasputin, and then the ending the ending is the whole last act is steeped but, but, in horror tropes. But are, but you're but the whole he thing? Ended, would you call Julius Caesar horror? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't call Julius Caesar horror. Okay, but like Julius That's Caesar was, as it, was it mounted by Hammer Pictures, starring Christopher Lee, as a back-to-back production with Dracula: Prince of Darkness? Like this is very clearly <laughs> designed to match up. To other horror films, it was released as a double with the reptile.
0: Like, all right, they were
1: intended, they intended this to be viewed by a horror audience. <laughs> I can see my point. A hole,
0: <laughs>
1: <I'm sorry. laughs> i sorry. No, I, 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 I've had, I've had, I so like, like, was like kind of a jerk now because I've had no,
0: no, 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 no. Uh, no, I agree with you. Um, but I just, it did strike me last night that, uh, rewatching this, that, you know, I, I think I'd always taken it for granted. It was a horror film for all of the reasons that you just mentioned. And, you know, it, by virtue of the fact that it was Hammer and it was Christopher Lee, but then rewatching it and sort of hitting on that idea. It's like, Oh, this is like if hammer did a historical drama. And then the more I got into it, I was like, no, it's not like if they did it, they did a historical drama. And this isn't really a horror film, you know, it's shot like a horror film. It has a couple of tense scenes of violence in it, but I, you know, going back to that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm getting defensive again, but Paul, I don't think the (laughs) intent of this film is to horrify.
1: Um, but couldn't you make that argument about a lot of Hammer stuff? I mean, we've talked about this before is that their movies often aren't outwardly scary. They're they're not not
0: necessarily scary, but when you have, I mean, there is an attempt there. And I think they probably played as more horrific for, you know, older audiences back in the day. Um, You know, that's
1: the other thing is we have to consider the
0: Dracula. Exactly. Dracula slinking toward a camera, you know, is not going to frighten you and I. But that doesn't mean that it's not its intent. I don't think that that was the aim with this film at any point.
1: Um, I don't know about that. I mean, I think that the character of Rasputin was supposed to elicit a certain, uh, uncomfortableness and, and yes, fear in certain contexts. And I think, I think it was, he's a character that you're supposed to be afraid of what he's capable of. And when he turns on a dime, oh, go ahead. No, you're right. You're right. But, and I agree with that, but at the same time,
0: like, can you still call it a horror film, then, if that's your lead character?
1: Like, well, I, As I, much I as you there's... can call any of the Frankenstein films a horror film. I mean, like, you know, often Frankenstein himself isn't scaring you. Like, in Curse of Frankenstein, he's doing
0: what awful is, things. What his
1: creatures are, you know? like. Uh, well, I mean, Lee in the first one is more pathetic and sad than scary like in the scene where he's like sit down you know like he's commanding him to do things and lee is just kind of bumbling around and barely sort of cognizant of his actions like he's more pathetic than frightening um and 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 certainly like there's an element of like the monsters being scary like towards the end of the film but like mostly the movie is kind of dramatic and interesting rather than scary, but it's, but it's playing in a horror sandbox, which I think is what Rasputin is kind of doing.
2: I
0: I don't know. I, I, you know, again, the fact that I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I fully feel it. Like, yeah, I do think that they are, hitting certain hallmarks that audiences would have expect out of a Hammer film. But to me, this feels like Hammer is trying to stretch itself a little bit. You said it yourself early on. This is much more like a prestige movie, and I don't know that they would have trusted audiences to have seen. Yeah, I, I think they opened their arms wide to all of the audiences who expected that they were likely to get a horror film, especially with Christopher Lee in the lead. Um, you know, Dracula, he's in our movie. Come check it out. But I think the movie that they tried to make, I don't know that, they believe they were I mean, making a horror film. I would be that... very curious to see if, you know, Sharp ever said that they were making a horror film, or if Lee said, you know. I could see... Now, here's the thing. You you take any other character's point of view in this movie. Take Zargo. Take, uh, you know, the... uh oh, fuck. Ivan, the Yusupov uh, analog here. Or uh, take Barbara Shelley's character. You know, you make any one of them the leads, and then you sort of have Rasputin sort of recede into the background a bit, then he becomes a monster. Then he haunts the film, you know, then he is a figure to be, uh, you know, truly frightened of, but as it stands, you know, y- you can't open the movie with the man. You can't make him the lead character. You can't show him dancing and, you know, having a great time and show us what his wants and desires are. And then still have him be, you know, uh, as frightening as it were as, uh, as say a Doctor Frankenstein or one of his creatures, or a Dracula. I don't think. Um, I don't know. Maybe
1: I'm talking out of my ass here. But still, you know,
0: I I I just don't get that from the movie.
1: All I know is that if I had a Hammer Gothic Horror Bingo card, I could fill the, <laughs> I could fill the whole thing out with this movie. Like it, I just I I mean I agree that that it, would make a great bonus episode at the end of all of this. We're doing it. <laughs> forget Remember, the rankings or or well i think i think uh we definitely need to do like at the end i think we need to do our each like a personal top 10 countdown i think needs to happen uh or like a top five or something some sort of ranking needs to occur when we get to uh can i count the entire frankenstein cycle as one thing no you have to pick a movie Fuck. you have to you have to individually pick and the hard part Will be then deciding. Well, do I have multiple Frankenstein's, or do I just pick one to represent? You know, all of them. That that's going to be what's really tough. You said tough. That's downright cruel, Paul. Well, I want to submit your and I's names to screen drafts for a hammer draft. That's what. That's my dream. Is that you and I go on to screen <laughs> drafts and we we draft a hammer. A, a seven movie Hammer list, which would be fucking impossible, uh, and and it would be very funny, I think, uh, for you and I to do it because we'd each have a veto, so we could you know oh. veto each other. Yeah, it would be rough. I'm trying to think of which one. That <laughs> I, don't I don't know that I would veto you though. Veto. I think I think I would just respect whatever pick you had. But the hard part would be if we came down to it and there was only like two picks left, and like you know something hadn't been picked yet, but. So, I'm I'm going to uh submit us. Just so you know, I'm volunteering you for such a draft. Uh and I'm hopefully... I'm
0: okay with that if they will have
1: me. Yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure they would. I, I don't know if they'll have me. They have like famous people on that show, so I don't know. But I think if anyone's equipped to do a hammer draft, it's us. <laughs> I would be okay with that. They follow me on Twitter, so I, I can DM them. But is that like, is that, is, is there some sort of protocol with that? Like, should I not? Like, I don't know.
0: I don't, yeah, I don't, I've never, I try not to ask to be on other podcasts. Yeah, um, that's true. Cause I don't, they're really no, I'm not going like, to, yeah. I take it back.
1: Now I got to mute all of this. <laughs> no, you don't have
0: to. I don't give a shit.
1: <laughs> I didn't say anything I I don't regret or I regret. If anyone hears yeah, this, absolutely. I want to go on screen, dress and dress hammer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that.
0: Now, Paul, I will say something here. This is kind of I, one, yeah, this is very kind of disturbing in its own way, like watching Rasputin having been poisoned and crawling after Zarga here. But what's weird is. You know, yeah, we're still relatively early on in Hammer, but they've also been kind of established for a while, too. And they have been taking some risks when it comes to the, the content in their films. Even down to this movie here, you know, in the opening moments, we saw a man's hand cut off. We saw a, a woman's back being bared, as it were, which is was risque, you know, certainly for Hammer at this point. We've seen a man <laughs> right here. We've seen a man's face burnt off with acid. Yeah. Why is it then do you think that they reined in what actually happened to Rasputin in real life and sort of sanitized his death when the entire movie has been building up that they could have done this big sensational sort of death scene with Rasputin. And certainly what they have here is, you know, it's good, but it, it feels like they pulled their punches in a movie that otherwise didn't. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it it feels a little rushed, um, and it does feel a little less thought out. Um, and certainly, the man's actual death was so crazy that it almost wouldn't have like been believable on film, because yeah, he had such a insane demise—stab, poisoned. But like, if you read about it, like it all sort of goes hand in hand because it's like there were so many drugs in his body like it was causing his blood not to flow so like that was actually keeping him alive which is insane so like the poisoning actually helped him survive the stabbing and shit like that versus like the film where to me again it leads into the supernatural leanings of the character like to me i almost felt like when i was watching it and i watched this with my wife and like when he ate all of the <laughs> wow the dummy falling out the window was just yeah pretty and they, uh, they pretty...
0: held on that for for a moment too like they didn't get away they just
1: yeah and when that happened too, my wife was like he's not dead there. Is he? That's not the, cause it feels kind of anticlimactic, like him just falling out a window. Like that's it. Like after surviving, eating so many poison chocolates, like he ate like 10 poison chocolates, um, you know, and that felt a little supernatural. Like, okay, so this guy is more powerful than he sort of lets on. um, also, that's the same uh, little frozen pond that he dies on in Prince of Darkness, caused by, again, as I said earlier, the same guy, Francis Matthews. So it's kind of fun little synergy between the two films. You
0: know, it's funny that you mention, um, but... <laughs> The 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 sort of ending being a bit anticlimactic, as I understand it, the ending that final battle was meant to be considerably longer. I think Matthews talked about having filmed uh, quite a bit of he and Christopher Lee battling and sort of rolling around, and in fact, he oh, yeah. apparently he's quite cross about it. And uh, I think on the Screen Factory desk, there's this great little uh, mini doc, and he's talking about how. Uh, you know, in one shot, he's he's perfectly prim and proper. You know, the suit looks great, not a hair out of place. And then in the very next shot, you can see he's disheveled and, you know, a bit sweaty. And it's like, it makes no sense continuity-wise whatsoever. But he was like, but they cut out the entire damn fight between us. So, oh, you know, wow. maybe, if, yeah. maybe if that had been reinstated, you know, the movie wouldn't feel quite so rushed when it got to that end. But But even still, like... I kind of wish that they had dramatized what actually happened in real life because, yeah, when you watch the movie, sure, he had a couple of poison chocolates and, you know, a couple of poison drinks, but in real life, like, he, you know, he was eating, like, poison cakes, you know, with, like, cyanide in them. He was drinking glasses of wine, you know, like, three glasses, something like that. Like, he, his system was pumped full of the stuff, and he never apparently, you know, according to the accounts, He never had that moment like Lee does where he clutches his stomach and collapses. That never happened. The poison never had an effect on him that anybody could tell that Yusupov anyway, when he wrote his account about what had happened, could tell. So it actually took him walking upstairs, grabbing the pistol, coming back down and shooting him and then going back upstairs with his co-conspirators. And then when they came back down, they discovered that he wasn't there. You know, at that point, uh, I believe another one of the co-conspirators, they grabbed a pistol and shot him in the forehead and the chest as well. Then they dragged his body outside to discard in the river, threw him in, and near as they could see, he was flailing in the water. Uh, and eventually they found him, like God knows how far away, like frozen underneath the river. But... uh You know, it's just kind of astonishing the sort of abuse that the man, you know, reportedly took. He was shot point blank in the forehead and that didn't kill him. You know, that's. There's something going on there, Paul. You say you don't believe in the supernatural, but holy shit. (laughs) Like that. The man had a constitution, you know. Hello. Hello.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello, Paul. Hello. Sorry, cut out for a minute.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Weird.
1: Where uh, Where did we leave off? Uh, you were just talking about. I, I heard you like. Um, it was like thirty seconds, I think. Like you were talking about uh, the real what, what happened and okay, poison. If I can <clears throat> um, Sorry. No, you're good. It was weird. Um, It, like, went blank, and then I was like, hello, hello, and then I heard you
0: say hello. Let me see if I can't cheat it so we can cut all of that out. Um, And, yeah, what's crazy is I, you know, I I really do wish that they could have kind of dramatized what actually happened to Rasputin or, you know, what was said to have happened to Rasputin by, uh, you know, Yusupov in real life and his account, you know, because it wasn't just, you know, in the movie we have Rasputin eating, you know, some uh, poison candies and drinking a bit of wine. In real life, apparently, like the man had eaten cyanide-laced cakes and had had, you know, cyanide-laced wine. And, you know, in the movie, of course, you have that moment where Christopher Lee, you know, sort of doubles over in pain and collapses. By the account that's given, that never happened in real life. Like, there was just no effect on the man whatsoever. Uh, So, you know, it it took Yusupov, uh, he's called Ivan in the movie, but uh, Prince Yusupov grabbing a pistol from upstairs, coming back down and shooting Rasputin going back upstairs, you know, talking with his co-conspirators. And then when they came back down, you know, Rasputin was missing or he was crawling across the floor or whatever. He was then shot by another co-conspirator twice, once point blank in the forehead. They dragged him outside, threw him off of a bridge into the icy river. And then they saw his body flailing around because he was still alive and trying to get out of the river. And eventually he was found, you know, you know, very far away, frozen underneath the river, not unlike Dracula in Prince of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and so finally that was the end of the man. Um, but it's like, Paul, holy shit. Like, you know, he he took a bullet point blank to the head. He had all that, you know, uh, uh, poison and cyanide coursing through his system. You tell me you don't believe in the supernatural a little bit if we're to believe that account? <laughs>
1: Not even a little bit. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if if that's all true, sure. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's a little hard to believe, but. Uh, no, mean... I will say you're right. It is hard to believe because
0: <laughs> there is another account. Like when the autopsy was done that basically said like, okay, Yusupov's account was that he shot him, went upstairs. They all hung out for 30 minutes. And then when they came back down, you know, the rest of the fight happened. He was shot in the forehead so on and so forth. The autopsy was like, no, he was shot in the chest and forehead at roughly the same time, and the forehead shot was fatal. Like that's what killed him. So, yeah. so yeah, that's much more likely. And you know the the Usopov account, you know, is likely, you know, a bit sensationalized. Uh, one would imagine. So yeah,
1: and like I'm not, you know, I'm not like trying to. It's fun to, in a way, it's fun to think about the possibilities of something outside of what we know or understand, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, and I would love, I, the weird thing about it all is I would love for supernatural stuff to be real. I think that would be great. I, I, I want something to sway me to that side of things. I want something to, you know, kind of like the, uh, I want to believe thing. You know, it's like, I I do, I really do, but I've yet to see, there's been one or two things in my life that I've experienced that were definitely weird and inexplicable, (laughs) like that I was kind of like, okay, something weird's going on, but even those, I'm like, there has to be an explanation, I just don't know what it is, you know, um, but You know, when I watch when I hear that story, though, that would have been a really cool finale for the movie we just watched, because in the context of a film, I can completely buy that that he had powers and that, you know, that's what was going on. And, you know, it would have been great to see him get shot in the head and not die. That would have been a very cool thing. Uh, for the Christopher Lee character in in that film. Um, and it would have been a more satisfying conclusion. I, I think, like I said, the, the weakest part of this movie is its final 20 minutes, which is disappointing. Um, it, it feels anticlimactic. Most of it is Christopher Lee going into a room by himself and eating candy, uh, which is not really the villain fight you want to see. As you mentioned, there was extended sequences shot around the final battle that were all cut. Um, and that just really disappoints me because I feel like that would have been at least more satisfying in some ways. Um, but I also think the narrative itself kind of suffers from not having more, more of Francis Matthews character early in the film and more of Barbara Shelley a little bit later in the film. You know, I, th- I think a lot of it is slimmed down to the point of being a little, little less dimensional than those characters maybe deserved.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And yet, you know, Paul, it's funny you said at one point you hated to be so negative, and I I hear you, man. I feel like we've we've sort of nitpicked a little on the movie, and being fair, I think the movie had a coming. But overall, <laughs> man, I I you know on this watch, like I gotta tell you, I I I have an appreciation for this film that's pretty considerable. I, I think even for all of its flaws, it's pretty damn fantastic. And I agree with you that this is hands down one of Lee's best performances.
1: Yeah, I um, was. Was this a first time watch for you, or no?
0: I I have been familiar with the movie since like going back to the nineties. 90- like I, <laughs> oh wow, I'm dating myself here, man. But like clamshell Anchor Bay VHS, like that's okay.
1: All right, I remember when. You, uh, uh, Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, sorry, go ahead. But that said been ages
1: so yeah well i was gonna say were you a fan of it like back then or were you sort of middling on it when you first saw it
0: middling and you know i gotta admit like being a relatively young fan it was one of those things where it's like you know it's there's something about it that's a bit off-putting when you come to Hammer Horror wanting Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and all of the big monsters, you know. And uh, so there was something about it that was, you know. But it's funny, that's the very reason that I think, you know, on this watch that I was more drawn to it. Because it is so decidedly different from everything else they were doing up until
1: that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, so for me, this was a first-time watch. Uh, I... nice. I had never seen it, yeah, I mean obviously i'm still uh still new to Hammer, I guess uh and I'm kind of like watching a lot of these movies for the first time, but um yeah i i really I loved the performance, I loved a lot of what it was doing i i I thought Don Sharp's direction was really good um I had some narrative issues, but nothing that ruined the film. Uh, And certainly, yeah, it stands out. I mean, out of all the movies we've watched again, if I was making a Christopher Lee, like these are the movies you need to see. This might almost be at the top, (laughs) you know, more so than really anything else that he's made hammer wise up until this point. Um, Just because of, how clearly his power as a performer is on display throughout every scene. And he really is the main character of this film. Um, It's kind of his version of what Cushing has with Frankenstein in some ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Could you imagine though, man, like, so, With, and I don't know that they would have considered it tasteless or not, and maybe it would have been, although no no more so than, again, Guillermo del Toro appropriating – well, actually, Mike Mignola appropriating the character for his Hellboy comics and you know, eventually del Toro with the movie. But you know, with Horror of Dracula, you have an adaptation essentially of the Bram Stoker novel, but there were still plenty of follow-ups. With Curse of Frankenstein, that's essentially – the Shelley novel. I mean, again, a very, very loose adaptation of it, but that gave way to a franchise. Can you imagine if we had gotten the several Rasputin follow ups? You know, <laughs> there's, there's nothing saying that he couldn't have risen from his icy. Yeah, we, of, we know, could have gotten them. Like, how many I, times? I, I kind of know? want the Brides of Rasputin. I want Rasputin <laughs> must be destroyed, you know?
1: Scars that would be of Rasputin. Good. Oh, Scars of Rasputin would be great. I would, uh, yeah, I'd be down for a and franchise. That'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd I agree. <laughs> we could, we could still do it. <laughs> Time for a remake. Hell yes. Or no, again,
0: you know, I'm kind of high on the idea of like doing the Dr. Sleep thing, the Mike Flanagan thing, where it's just kind of like, you know what? I'm going to do a sequel decades later and you're going to accept yeah. the first movie is canon and we're just going to recast everybody. And here we go. We can do it. <laughs> i'd be down i'd dig it all right man it is uh holy shit it is somehow someway 213 in the am where i am such is the nature of having uh a, a two-hour conversation on the snyder cup before we start recording <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's our own fault <laughs> it is it is but i don't regret it so. we each bought Blu- blu-rays in the context of the conversations so that's we uh that's fun we did good we did good you're good. So uh
0: no, no, overall, man, I'm I'm glad we watched this movie. Certainly. I uh I'm looking forward to the next movie that we're gonna do, man. But I gotta ask, like, so you're you're definitely on board with Rasputin, though, even even for its flaws. Oh yeah.
1: Like, I'm on board. I'm on board. Good deal.
0: All right. So, folks out there, let me take a quick look here and see what we're gonna be back with next week. Paul, you wouldn't happen to know offhand, would you? Uh I do
1: not. <laughs> I All never right. know. I never
0: know. It's cool, man. Like. It's cool. It's all right. You know, I'm just going to look this up. We're going to do this shit real time, man. Uh, quick, say something. Be, uh, be entertaining to the listeners so we don't have any dead air. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh. <laughs> okay. Got it. Okay, you ready? It's going <laughs> to yeah. be. Ooh, it's going to be a first time watch, Paul. For me, anyway. What's that? I'm excited. Our next movie is Cyril Frankel's The Witches,
1: starring Joan Fontaine. Oh, okay. Paul, I've never seen this fucking quater. I have also never seen it. I guess I have to get a copy. Made by Hammer
0: Films. It was adapted by Nigel Neal of Quatermass fame from the 1960 novel The Devil's Own by Nora Lofts. All right. I'm going to have to... And I believe this is on a, a relatively bare-bones Scream Factory edition. So uh, definitely going to have to snag that. So folks out there, if you want to prep in advance... Make certain to pick up that Blu-ray soon because, well, like most Hammers, I can't imagine if this one is streaming. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. I'm excited. Any first-time watch for a Hammer is, uh, is an exciting prospect. So, can't wait. All right, Paul, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Do you have any final thoughts on Rasputin, or do you just want to go ahead and tell folks where they can
1: find you out online? Uh, Rasputin is ultimately good, so it's good. The movie. Uh, the movie. The, uh no, the guy. Okay. He's a he's a good guy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I stand by all of the decisions he makes. Uh anyway, uh I can be found at uh paulisgreat 2000 on twitter.com. Wow. All right, thanks, Paul. And as always,
0: thanks to all you listeners as well. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. That is at Screamatics, and I am at Jinx1981. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great weekend.